Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. Joining me as always, we got my guy, Cody Safdick. You guys can follow him at CJ Safdick on Twitter, and we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 24, headlined by Kelvin Gaslam and Robert Whitaker. A fight that was originally supposed to take place in February of 2019, headlining UFC 234, but the stakes are much different this time around. We had Whitaker as a champion back then. Gaslam coming in as a challenger. A whole lot of shit has happened in that amount of time. Now we got both guys looking to get back into the title picture, and I'm very much looking forward to this fight. Odds are pretty much the same as they were when they were originally scheduled to fight, so we'll see what uh, changes both guys have made in that amount of time and how it plays out this weekend. Cody, you psyched for this matchup, or are you just like, I just want to get past this matchup? There is a lot of fun things going on at middleweight. We see Israel Adesanya is now kind of beatable. Now we want to see him actually defend the title what's your feeling regarding this matchup and this card as a whole? Yeah, it's, listen, it's a pretty fun card in terms of some exciting matchups. People always talk about, like, well, the name brand guys. And I always say, anytime you get Andre Orlovsky on your prelims, the card's obviously not that bad. But there's some fun fights. There's some, you know, exciting matchups. I think there's some great spots. But as far as the main event, listen, this is a free card, and you're getting a former world-class champion, Robert Whitaker, a guy that's gone in there. He's given you fight-of-the-year candidates against Yoel Romero. He's fought the best guys. He is always usually a very exciting fight with Robert Whitaker. And taking on a guy in Kelvin Gastelum that if he's not going to get submitted quick by a heel hook, he's going to give you one hell of a fight. You know, he's got a great chin. We saw what he did in the Israel Adesanya fight where he extended him over five and there's really 2-2 going into the fifth. Like, there's a lot that you can take away. This is high-caliber fighting, the highest level. I mean, how could you not get excited for it? So I think the burnout effect is that there's a card every week, and people just, yeah. you know, another fight, another fight, another fight, and, like, what else is going on? But this, this is intriguing on any card at any time. So, yes, I'm looking forward to it. Adding the fact that the Bellator has been running cards the last couple of weeks as well. You get back-to-back -back, uh, nights of events, not to mention LFA, CFFC. So there's a ton of MMA for us to watch as fans. So it's a great time to be an MMA fan. Uh, but there is a little bit of a burnout effect. Thankfully, we got three title fights next weekend that we can look forward to. And I'm sure we're going to be a lot more psyched to break that down for the guys. All right, before we kick things off, as always, make sure you guys like and subscribe to the video. Again, this is the new home for propping you up. There is no longer the odds channel or anything like that. It seems like last week, the last couple of times we've done this that people are slowly starting to migrate over and that's a great sign because i know you guys love the show me and cody love doing it for you guys and it's a it's probably my favorite day of the week i'm gonna be honest i love breaking this card down from a, uh from a prospect perspective obviously with my guy uh cody all right let's not waste too much time we got 12 fights to get through we had a couple fall off uh, earlier this week but luckily not not many that i was like super excited for anyway so let's start off at the bottom of the card here we got tony gravely versus anthony burchek obviously you got heavy uh chalk odds on gravely here minus 325 plus 265 is the return on anthony burchek grappler's delight type of matchup right you got burchek as a solid bjj black belt out of that 10th planet if i'm not mistaken he actually owns a 10th planet location uh, and then tony gravely solid wrestler great top control great pressure has great cardio in my opinion too we've seen him go out there go into fourth and fifth rounds and finish guys on the regional scene and he had a ton of experience before he actually came into the ufc you know came in uh to to the dana white contender series finished ray rodriguez and then gets the contract but he still has a lot of potential that i feel like he can fulfill once he gets to once he starts you know racking up a couple wins now i think a lot of people are a little bit too concerned about tony gravely considering the fact that he's already lost via submission to brett johns only a couple fights ago but i think that's a completely different style matchup that you're talking about with brett johns who's you know pretty much jack shore as well which is just always coming forward taking you down constant pressure never letting you breathe whereas anthony burchick is kind of content with getting uh, taken down and being okay with just fighting off of his 
his back. And if he's not able to pull off the submission, more than likely he's getting grinded out, uh, you know, to a decision. Last time around for Brecek, we saw him get club and subbed by Gustavo Lopez and probably not the return that he wanted in the UFC. But I think that this is a, this is a fight that, you know, he needs to win if he really wants to, you know, secure his seat in the UFC for the second time that he's actually been in the UFC now, right? I think that Gravely definitely wins this fight. I think he takes this to the ground, uh, controls this fight. There are a bunch of finishes on both of these guys' records, but I believe the way these guys match up, we'll see Gravely uh, pursue this fight in more of a, uh, a safe approach. Take this to the ground, grind him out, stay out of uh, the submissions, and maybe not overextend on any heavy ground and pound or anything like that, but he should still be able to go out there and just grind, uh, you know, win minutes, win rounds, and then take home the judge's decision. So I think the best prop... Obviously, is the Gravely via decision. We got it at plus 245. Kind of surprised it's that high. But I think you once you look at these guys' records, and if you just wiki cap it, you see them as like, okay, you know, th these guys are finishers or they get finished. Uh, but I think the way that these guys actually match up, we're going to see this get extended over 15 minutes and we see a Gravely decision. So plus 245 for a prop like that, I I'd be all over that. I think that's a very good spot. Cody, how are you seeing this one, dude? Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling the same thing. I think that we're going to get some rounds here. I think this is probably likely to go to decision. But Burchek has a way of just the fight ends and you didn't think it was going to. I thought the fight versus Gustavo Lopez would also probably go to the decision because Anthony Burchek's been knocked out once in his entire career, six years ago against Thomas Almeida. So even though people might question that he maybe be a little bit chinny, uh, one knockout lost six years ago, that's all for his career. Really not that bad of a spot. As far as his submission game, Bro, you nailed it. Dude's a BJJ black belt. He's a 10th planet black belt, owns his own location, and frequently tra uh, travels and competes in grappling tournaments. And yet Gustavo Lopez is choking him out with a rear naked choke. Like, unbelievable. Yeah. Guy also wrestled collegiately and is out of Arizona, wrestled with some great guys out of a good camp, and yet gives up two takedowns to Delano Lopez, gives up two takedowns to Gustavo Lopez. Um, the fights in Japan and Ryzen where he went 0-3, like, mind you, if they were scoring that round per round in America, he probably wins a couple of them. But still, like the Atsuka fight in particular and the Jihoon Moon fights, like, my my God, man, like, he's just better days behind him. 34 years old. I think that we've seen the best version of Anthony Burchek, and that was when he knocked out Joe Soto again six years yeah. ago. A lot of times past, he hasn't really had exactly the most promise, and then he takes a return to the UFC. I was actually a little surprised that UFC brought him back. He hasn't been on the greatest run. He's not looking great in form, but if you remember, that's actually a short, short notice opportunity for him, right? Uh, Gustavo Lopez was originally scheduled to take on, I'll bring it up here really quick. It's supposed to be Gustavo Lopez versus uh, Philippe Corrales. And then Corrales pulls out like a week or two before Burchek steps in. Is that why he looked that bad? Potentially. But it looks like he's got suspect takedown defense first and foremost. Again, the, you go back to the Delano Lopez fight, his previous uh, stint in the UFC. You go back to the fights in Japan where he seems to fatigue later and his wrestling is not as effective. You look at all that. Takedown defense seems to be an issue for him. So fighting Tony Gravely, man, that's going to be a problem. I mean, not only was the Brett Johns fight close and competitive those close two rounds, but uh, Gravely takes him down five times. And Brett Johns, the judo black belt, a guy that wrestled on the Welsh national team, like, guy, you mentioned the Jack Shore comparison, great comparison. Like, dude is a grinder, dude is a, a scrambler, dude makes you work the entire time. And him versus Gravely is an absolute treat to watch. Very fun fight. Does he get tired in the third round and get before he gets submitted? Yeah, definitely. However, the pace of that fight is just crazy. Then you look at his next time around again. Does he does he does he get tired? Does he have an issue where he's getting tired in the in the third rounds of these fights potentially? But you know what? When you go and you score seven takedowns, it's tiring. It's tiring work. He's only twenty nine. He's out of American Top Team. The Geraldo Freitas fight, split decision, tired in the third round. Man, I looked at ten minutes of top control. I looked at seven takedowns. I looked at the fact that at twenty nine at ATT, 
getting wins in the UFC, operating at this level and getting better and better, all great stuff. So how does he match up with Anthony Burchak? Who's going to have the wrestling advantage. He's obviously loves to shoot takedowns. He's going to get the fight to the ground. Am I worried Burchak catches him with something off the back? Gravely's, Gravely's been there, done that. You know, here's a guy that makes his UFC debut and he's like uh, 19 and five. Like, man, 24 fights before coming to the UFC. You don't see that anymore, especially yeah. out of a 29 year old fighter. Like, he's still relatively young. So I think there's a lot that you could take away that you would like from Gravely. I think he uses his wrestling. I want to chase that angle of the fight goes the distance as well. So when I look at the props on this spot, I thought Gravely Burchak goes the distance plus 150. That's a nice price tag right there, right? If we use the wrestling, we just take Burchak down. You know, his, his chin, as we mentioned, only been knocked out one time six years ago. Thomas Almeida, so no problem. As far as his submission game, he's supposed to have good submission defense. He hasn't really shown it. He's supposed to have it, but gravely not really a submission guy, maybe, at that level. So we should just get wrestling, grind him, get us that decision. Gravely, so far in two UFC fights, uh, they should have both gone the distance, right? He got submitted late against Brett Johns, and that's Brett Johns. And then the fight with Geraldo Freitas does go the distance. But when you look at all of his finishes on the regional scene, right? Because as you mentioned, if you wiki cap it, he shows a lot of finishes. Ray Rodriguez fight. It's Ray Rodriguez. <laughs> and, and, he, and he takes him late into the third round, right? The, yeah. This Derek Mima fight. Again, Derek Mima is a journeyman 10-7 opponent who's been finished many of times. But it still takes him almost two full rounds to get him out of there. Chris Moutinho, it's a fourth-round finish, right? D Draco Rodriguez, he gets him out late in the fifth. Like, he's got a lot of late finishes where he just grinds a lesser opponent down until they break and they can't take it anymore. We'll talk about Romanov later. You just you just grind a guy until he's just not there anymore, and then you put him away, right? It's not quick finishes. It's just like, like a grind, right? I think that if anything, he's going to take Burchak out late, but I'm hoping this goes the distance, and I'm going to hit that 150 uh, fight goes the distance. The other angle I'm looking at is the gravely by decision, which is plus 245. So if he just uses his wrestling, gets those takedowns, Holds that top control. It's, near, it's it's plus two fifty, like decent enough price tag for me. So those are the two angles I'm looking at this one. Yeah, even if you look at Burchak's record, that run that he had in Risen after the UFC, three decision losses to Tsui Kawajiri, Otsuka, and Jihun Moon. We know Kawajiri almost brings a similar style as Gravely, which is just heavy top pressure takedowns and just try to grind you out. And hopefully that's what Gravely brings to the table here. And we can catch that decision prop because I think that's a very good spot. Again, like you were saying, the overs are nice too, right? We got over one and a half at minus 150, over two and a half at plus 125. So if you have access to those alternate totals, which would be the one and a half, I think that's a good spot to hit here. All right. Let's move on to the next fight. And gee whiz, we got a we got a cracker here. We got Zara Farron versus Josiane Nunez. We got the newcomer Nunez coming in at seven and one. Her only loss is to Tyler Santos, which I believe was her second professional MMA fight back in 2013. So we're talking about over eight years ago. And in that amount of time, she's racked up what is that six straight wins? But not to mention she's actually joined Tyler Santos's team and joined that Astro Fight team. Uh, you know. The team that's almost synonymous with, uh, you know, <laughs> patting their opponents, patting the records, right? We got a lot of guys coming into the uh, UFC with only one loss and like 18 wins or some shit like that. Uh, so it's you definitely know that that something is going on there. But what she brings to the table, I'm kind of surprised that she's the favorite here, man. Like she's just a little bit of a pit bull that just continues to move forward and, and wings wild shots. She just blitzes forward, doesn't really have any crazy technique. Even when she throws her kicks, like she's almost like hopping off of her foot when she's throwing these shots because she's trying to throw like all of her ferocity into it. But I don't see the craziest technique out there. Luckily for her, she's going out there and being girls with almost the Homer Simpson approach where she's like almost losing the fight up until the point that she knocks them out. Um, you know, there's a couple of fights where like uh, women are able to just uh, clinch her up against the cage and, and really slow her down. But then unfortunately, 
they get slowed down in the process and then Nunez crashes forward and uh you know crowds them with punches and then gets them out of there uh she doesn't seem the greatest off of her back either not to mention she's a five foot two bantamweight here compared to Zara Farron who's going to be five foot eight at least that's what listens that's what's listed on UFC stats um according to Sherdog she's five foot ten so it would be even better if it was five foot ten versus five foot two here because that stare down is going to look just as comical as Dao Un Jung and William Knight from the other week but in terms of how these girls match up, I, I favor Zara here. I think that she can go out there and keep this fight at distance. And, you know, she hasn't had the greatest run in the UFC. And obviously, when you see her have a submission loss to Megan Anderson on her record, you're like, all right, I'm probably fading this girl no matter who the hell she's facing. But once you actually run the tape on Nunes here, I think that Zara should do a good enough job in terms of maintaining her distance, getting her lob, long jab and one-two going. And when she is winning fights that you see on the regional scene at 135 pounds, which she's finally going to be able to make her debut at that weight class in the UFC here, uh, she's way more successful with that right the only thing that i think is lacking in zara's game is her volume i want to see a little bit more volume off of her uh to ensure that she'll be able to keep nunez on the edge of her punches neither one of these women really look to pursue the grappling or the uh, the clinch game in their uh in their fights i think that nunez is going to have to look to do that to be able to close that gap first and foremost and then get this fight to the ground and you know completely nullify that reach and height disadvantage that she's going to be at um, I still think, though, that Zara is going to be much better on the feet here. I think she'll keep her at range. Uh, I think it will almost look like a a bull and matador type situation where Nunes is always going to be crashing forward, but Zara will be able to kind of keep her on the end of her shots. Again, this is super low-level women's MMA that we're talking about, so I'm definitely going to have to go with the dog here, but I do think that there's a solid path to victory for Zara here. The spots that I'm most like uh, happy to, to pursue here are, are the totals as well, right? I think it's heavily... Um, uh, um, influenced by the fact that uh, Nunes has all these knockouts on her record, but you have to look a little bit deeper to see the type of opponents that she's been going up against. She's not, I don't think she'll be able to do that to Farron, which is just crash forward and land some big bombs and, and try to get out of there. I don't think that's going to work. Uh, so you got the over one and a half at minus 250. That's a little bit chalky. The over two and a half at minus 145 is not a really, is not a bad spot in my opinion. At minus 125 for the fight goes to the decision. I think that's a, another solid spot, but the one that I'm going to be chasing is Zara straight. I think at plus one and five, she holds great value and then uh, even zara to win by decision is plus 195 that's another one that i very much like as i think she'll be successful in keeping this uh, on the outside and just getting her distance striking game going again this is low level women's mma one takedown from nunez you know that 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 blue belt of zara Farron does not look the greatest so uh, i'm not sure how much she's going to really uh, get going off of her back but i think she'll do a good enough job in terms of keeping this fight on the feet keeping her at distance use her push kick use her kicks use her long jab use her long one too and just keep nunez on the outside kind of surprised that nunez is the favorite here to be honest how are you feeling about this one yeah listen yeah you pretty much nailed it. it's low level women's mma how much investment do we really want not a ton but i think that the advantage would go zara fair and first of all she's a slight underdog so then in itself she has the value play but considering that she's already had two fights in the ufc versus a, a debuting fighter that's already a slight advantage right she's had a little bit of experience you talk about losing to megan anderson megan anderson's six feet tall right nunez is five foot two think about the difference in that alone it's like these these opponents are not comparable Felicia Spencer is a high-end BJJ black belt. This girl is on top of you. You have a serious problem coming. She's also like the second best girl in the division. Went five rounds with the champ. Uh, uh, obviously, really not that bad. Megan Anderson, the only legitimate 145-pounder in the division. Really not all that bad. But it's going out there making the ring walk. It's going out there and getting that experience. Getting the round and losing. You know, seeing your opponent get their hand raised. Going back to the chalking board. But you, you fought in the UFC. You've got that out of the way. So, again, small advantage. 
her coming from 145 to 135, perfect, right? That's the weight class she should have been in already. So she should be a little more, you know, comfortable at 135. She's going to have a six-inch height advantage. She's got a five-inch reach advantage. So she looks to be like the naturally bigger fighter in the spot. But also, this is like the first time where it figures that she's not taken down. Because even though Nunez could go out there and throw a wrinkle game plan, we, we haven't seen it. Nunez turned pro in 2013, right? She's been fighting professionally for eight years, and yet she has eight pro fights. So, like, she does not fight very often. She fights very, very sporadically. Of her seven pro wins, she has six of them were by knockout, one by decision. So she's never submitted an opponent. And prior to moving to Astra MMA, which is known for producing Darren Till, I mean, does he got a very good ground game? No, they're all it's striking camp. Prior to that, she was out of uh, what what's the gym called? It's like Strikers, Strikers United or Strikers something. Anyway, it, it's like uh, she's a striking based fighter, Muay Thai based fighter. You see her fights Muay Thai, Muay Thai, Muay Thai. So at least with Fair and going to get a fair shake, a fair stand up battle, she should be a little bit better. She does have that fight with Kavanaugh back in the Bama regional scene back in the day. It's a split decision loss, although I thought she was really competitive. You could have given the nod towards her. Um, he's also got a win over like Isabel Badurek, who's a, another UFC veteran, but you know a one-and-out UFC veteran. But still, she, she still has fought on paper the better level, better level of competition. Her two losses in the UFC are to the elite featherweights, even though there's only five of them in the division. I, I just feel like she's got all these advantages. Now you look at the line, it's like, hey, what prop are we chasing here? I feel like this thing's going the distance. I feel like to get fair and out of there, you take her down, you submit her. But because we've never seen that out of Nunez, she has no submission victories. I don't think that's the path of victory. I think they're both going to stand, they're both going to bang, and I don't think any of them have some type of fight-changing power. So because it'll probably go towards the decision, you're looking at that fight goes the distance at minus 125. Again, it's near, nearly an even money play. Not so bad. But if you are taking fair, you take that fair by decision, plus 195. I mean, it's nearly 2-1, to one, and uh, it, it's a decent enough spot. But again, I have very low confidence in this this might be your beer and bathroom break fight. Uh, who knows? I, I'm obviously going to watch it. I'm obviously have you know a little bit of vested interest as well. But I would not blame you in the slightest bit if you just passed on it. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's funny that you say like none of these women have like sauce on their shots or they don't have any crazy knockout power. Especially considering when you look at Nunez's record, she has all these knockout victories on her on her record. But you have to truly dig the dig into that tape and see how she's getting these knockouts and you understand why uh, you know how she has all these knockouts because all of her opponents are gassing out or just not fighters to be honest. So it's really uh, tough to to say that when she gets to the UFC now, finding you know women that actually know what they're doing inside the cage that should be able to achieve those knockouts like she did in the past all right let's move on to the next fight here we got austin hubbard taking on short notice dakota bush who comes in on uh like i said short notice uh replacing the Tan levy i believe who had to pull out a couple weeks ago i'm not entirely sure what happened to levy there i believe it was covid not 100 sure but bush gets the call up here uh he did last compete for lfa back in january uh where he was able to pull up a, a quick uh knockout victory i believe it was and now he's getting the call up to the ufc here and i think he has some good skill sets that he can bring to the table Obviously, he has a college wrestling background to boot, and I think that that's going to definitely play, in, uh, play into uh, the factor here, especially considering that Austin Harper has fought pretty much all grapplers in his UFC uh, stint. I'm not sure who the hell he pissed off uh, in the UFC, Sean Shelby or McMaynard, to just continuously give this guy grappler after grappler after grappler. Like, makes his debut against freaking Davy ha Davi Hamosh. Makes a good account of himself, maybe into a full 15 minutes, but he just got completely outworked in that fight. Then goes out there and fights our, our Ontario's own Kyle Prepolik, beats him via decision. That's probably the best fight for him in terms of, uh, you know, striker versus striker, and then he was 
able to showcase his best uh, work in that fight. Marco Madsen, Olympic level wrestler, goes out there and you know gets grinded out by him. Has some bright moments of his own, but he just can't keep Marco Madsen off him for the majority of that fight. Then the Max Roskop fight, right? That was a weird one where. Roscoff just completely quit on the stool after round two. His takedowns weren't working out for him. He was only able to accumulate about a minute of control time in those 10 minutes of fighting. And that's kind of what his game is. Get guys to the ground and try to get them, get them out there quickly. He was not able to do that against Austin, and then Austin was able to pull off the win there. Then the Joe Selecki one, right? Joe Selecki's like, I'm not even going to bother taking you down. I'm just going to jump on your back, try to choke you out, and that's probably the, the the best path to victory for him. And it worked out for him. Just two and a half minutes, he was able to get Austin Hubbard out of there uh, via choke. Beautiful, beautiful finish from Joe Selecki there. But now Austin Hubbard draws another uh, wrestler in uh, Dakota Bush. Now, Dakota Bush coming in on short notice, like I said, only about a week to a week and a half of time that he was able to uh, to train for this fight, or at least prepare specifically for this fight. But you got to believe that he was ready to take the call had it come. Like more often than not, when you see these fighters take the short notice call, they go up a division. So they don't have to cut the weight and make the division that they normally fight at. But you're getting Dakota Bush fighting here at 155 pounds, just as he normally does. So I'm, I'm thinking that the kid is ready and should be ready to go. And I'm actually favoring him here as the underdog. I think that he has a good game plan to go out there and hopefully land takedowns, hopefully get some control time and beat up Austin Hubbard from the top position. Now, don't get me wrong. He's a far cry from Davi Hamosh and Marco Madsen in terms of the level of wrestling that we're talking about. But you're still talking about a standout uh, college wrestler here in Dakota Bush. And we've seen it in his past fights where he's able to get guys down and control them and either submit them, TKO them or whatever it may be. Austin Hubbard is great on the feet. He'll obviously have the advantage on the feet the longer this fight stays in the striking realm. But it's hard for me to see that Dakota Bush doesn't get this fight down time and time again. His durability seems to be pretty on point, so I'm not sure if Austin Hubbard will be able to get him out of there and with, with striking or anything like that. So I do favor Dakota Bush here, and I think he's actually grind this fight out and, and win it via decision. So uh, the over 2.5, minus 175, not a bad spot. But even if you want to go deeper and you want to pick specifically by method, Dakota Bush to win by decision is plus 485. And I think that is a beautiful line. I think this is, that's a great line to, to capitalize on, especially for a heavy wrestler here in Dakota, Dakota Bush. I think the money is coming in on Austin Hubbard because – People don't know who the fuck Dakota Bush is, not to mention he has his nickname, Harry Bush. People are just thinking that he's a meme fighter at this point in time. But the guy has some legitimate skills. He has two losses on his record, not the worst thing in the world. But the way that he fights and the wrestling approach that he brings, I think he's going to give some big trouble here to Austin Hubbard, who needs that space to get his game going, who needs that space to get his strikes off and needs that space to get those thud leg kicks off, hence his nickname, right? So... I like Bush here. I think he gets the takedowns. I think he controls this fight, and he wins via decision, plus 485. I love that spot. Talk me down. How, how are you seeing this one? Yeah, I got to go the other way. I'm kind of feeling Austin Hubbard. I mean, okay. again, you got to go with experience. And with Austin Hubbard, the UFC hasn't granted him any favors whatsoever. And yet, here's a guy that still goes out there and prevails. Prior to even coming to the UFC, he won the LFA title being Achilles Mota, fifth-round stoppage. In that fight, he's losing the majority of it. But he just sticks around a little too long. The longer this guy stays in the fight, his cardio really is his best weapon. I mean, we know that he trains at Colorado Elevation Fight Team, but routinely he comes off to a slow start and then eventually gets his game working. But make, making his UFC debut, they give him Davi Ramos, you know, former ADCC world champion, one of the best guys, in the, one of the best grapplers in the world. But that's a tough task for, a, for an unproven kid. And yeah, he loses the fight, but gets taken down three times, you know, keeps, keeps going as much as he can, doesn't get submitted, gave some okay looks of himself. So when he comes into this Kyle Prepolik fight, Kyle Prepolik, not a wrestler, striker, right? And even though his leg got absolutely chewed off, 
He goes out there, he get, gets the win over Prep Bullock, doesn't get tired, right? Fights to the end. Okay, no problem. The, the main takeaway is that against a striker, he's going to have a lot more success than against these wrestler-type guys. Marco Madsen comes in, same thing. But Marco Madsen's an Olympic silver medalist. He's a guy that medaled four times at the Worlds, right? Three silvers and a bronze. He's one of the best athletes in the UFC. He goes out there and he takes him out eight times and just, and just thrashes him. But in the third round, I mean, Hubbard again, he's putting the pressure on. He's, that's his best round in the fight. He keeps coming, right? The the Max Roche, the Max Roshkov fight, Roshkov has a great start, but he breaks him. Joe Selecki, now, now here's the here's what I'm getting at. Losing to Joe Selecki from what we just seen, obviously, from the Jim Miller fight this weekend, no big deal, man. This guy's a good fighter, right? He's only getting better. As far as his wrestling and grappling goes, definitely on point. Marco Madsen, dude's a former silver medalist at the, at the Olympics, wrestling on point. Davi Ramos, grappling on point. Against that level, he can survive, he can hang, but like that's what's giving him trouble. Dakota Bush, he's not, he's not at that level. I think even if he does go get those takedowns, Hubbard has got a great get-up game. And when Hubbard gets up, he should be able to win these striking exchanges and just lean on the kid. Kid's coming in on short notice, right? So he's going to have to be in great shape. But also making your UFC debut, octagon jitters, experiencing this all for the first time, having that, having that adrenaline dump against a guy that's had a full camp, that's a problem. Also, not only did the guy have a full camp, but he has a full camp with, with Drew Dober and Justin Gaethje, some of the best guys on the planet, Neil Magny. He's working on these guys on a day-to-day -day basis. He's still only 29, and he's getting better every time out. The Joe Selecki fight, yeah, it's a shame that he got submitted that quick, but he did stuff both of Selecki's takedown attempts um, prior to just getting a standing back take. It's a tough spot, sure, but again, I'm going to give him a pass because it's Joe Selecki. With Dakota Bush, he has no really no notable wins on his record. I mean, the one fight that I was really interested in, I went back and tape study, was him versus Jaleel Willis. Because I really like Jaleel Willis. And uh, he can't take him down. You know, his wrestling's ineffective in that fight. So against a higher level of opposition, I think he's going to get stuffed. And then as far as his striking goes, maybe it's comparable to Hubbard. But I think the longer the fight goes, Hubbard should just be able to work him over. Again, this is not a fight I'm totally confident in because Hubbard has a way of, you know, I mean, he's three, he's two and three in the UFC and he's rotated wins and losses. He's coming off a loss, so he's due for a win. But I mean, it's not enough to get me super excited to back him up. Now, when I look at the fight, though, the best spot I see is this fight goes the distance. Because when you look at Dakota Bush, Dakota Bush has never been finished, right? Both of his pro losses are by decision. So he hasn't really shown a bad chin. He hasn't shown a submission defense problem. And with Hubbard, Hubbard really has no intangible. He doesn't have this big knockout power. He doesn't have a slick submission game. He really just wears on you. That's how his way of winning is wearing on you. That probably won't be enough to take out Dakota Bush. Flip side, if Bush wins, I don't think his submission game is, is good enough to pull a Joe Selecki. And certainly his power is not good enough to knock out Austin Hubbard, a guy that is routinely in the room with J Justin Gaethje and Drew Dober. Like, everything he's seen in training, this is going to be a far lesser extent of that. So I would have to say he is the rightful favorite. The line's not terribly out of place. But the spot that I'm looking at is this fight goes to, it's at minus 155. Beyond that, Hubbard by decision is plus 115. If you were going to back Austin Hubbard, I think, again, Bush, both of his losses by a decision, doesn't really show a, a problem with getting finished. Hubbard not really not a finisher. If you are going to take Hubbard, the money line's not quite good enough, so we're going to chase that decision prop to get a plus money play out of it. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree that this is a huge step up in competition for Dakota Bush. Let's see if he's actually ready for it. And unfortunately for him, he has to take it on short notice here. But I think that this is a good fight for, for both guys. We'll see. Def we'll definitely find out about Hubbard, how much his takedown defense has improved, and if Dakota Bush will actually be able to cut it inside the UFC here. All right, let's move things along here. We got Gerald Mearshart going up against Bartos Fabinski. Close line here. We got minus 130 on Fabinski, plus 110 on Gerald Mearshart. And it seems like every time Fabinski's put up against some 
somebody with a decent grappling background or jiu-jitsu background, he finds himself getting submitted, right? It's been two of his last three fights where he gets submitted by uh, Michelle Pizeres via guillotine choke, and then obviously Andre Munez via via armbar. But more often than not, you, you can kind of bank on this guy to always take his opponents down. The guy knows no other way to fight. There's one fight, I believe, I believe it was the Emil Mech fight, where uh, Brian Stan said that he he interviewed Bertos Pavinsky before the fight and said, oh, apparently your coaches told me that you were really working on your hands and you know you can't wait to showcase it in this fight. And Fabinski just deadpan looks at him and just goes, I'm going to take him down. <laughs> like, that's just my game plan. I'm not going to use my hands. I don't care how much I've been working on it in the gym. This is how I'm able to beat opponents. It's been working for me up until that point. Uh, so why am I going to ditch it? And luckily for him in that Emil Mech fight, that's not a fight you want to go out there and test your striking with because, you know, Emil Mech, a little bit of a joke in the betting community because of how bad his grappling game is. But he has some power in his hands. So uh, if Fabinski decided to take that route, he probably would have lost that fight. But goes out there, absolutely, you know, grounds Emil Mech time and time again, uh, pulling off a decision victory there. There. But then again, he for me, for, for my money, he gets a little bit too desperate in these situations to try to take these guys down, which is why Michelle Prezeris was able to slatch on that guillotine choke, which is why Andre Munez was able to throw up that uh, that arm bar on him. Now, Gerald Mirchart is obviously the weakest out of those three guys, right, in terms of their, his jiu-jitsu. He is still a high-level jiu-jitsu player, don't get me wrong, but... You know, if I'm banking on one out of those three guys, Gerald Mearshart's going to be probably number three here. But I still think that he could give Fabinski some issues in terms of if Fabinski wants to go out there and give us that classic Fabinski method, which is lay and pray. Get, get on top of you, stay on top of you, not really do any huge damaging blows with your ground upon or anything like that. Don't even seek submissions or anything like that. I'm going to lay on top of you. I'm going to stay active enough so the referee doesn't stand us up. And I'm just going to drown you over 15 minutes. And that could absolutely happen here against Gerald Mearshart. But if you're giving me a guy with, giving me a guy that we've seen, you know, get drowned in fights and then pull off submissions late in fights, or even have as many fights as he had, I believe this is going to be his 45th fight. The guy's been in there with just so many different types of fighters, so many different types of styles that you got to believe that he's seen somebody like Fabinski in the past, and he's going to be ready. Like. I'd be surprised if he didn't spend at least 80% of this training camp on his back because he's going to get taken down. It's all about how is he going to be able to throw up submissions off of his back? How is he going to be able to catch Fabinski slipping just as Prezeris and Andre Munez did? And I feel like that's a little bit of enough for me to want to take a little bit of a shot here on a mere shot to win by submission, which is plus 240. Like, take a little bit of a half unit shot on there, considering that this will always be in the grappling realm. There's always going to be the opportunity for mere shot to throw up a submission or catch Fabinski on the way in with a guillotine or whatever the hell it is. But because we know what Fabinski's game is, it's just black and white. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to throw a couple of strikes with no power on them just so I can close the distance and try to drag you to the ground. Gerald Mearshart, obviously not the best run. Last two fights, knocked out by Hamza Chimaev and knocked out by Ian Heinish. But I still think the guy has something to bring to the table in terms of his jiu-jitsu jiu game. So I'm going to take uh, Gerald Mearshart to, to actually snatch on a sub here. Uh, obviously, he'll probably be losing 99% of this fight up until he gets that submission. And uh, at plus 240, I don't mind that little bit of a sprinkle compared to, you know, Fabinski, who take you down, take you down, take you down. But if you're going to make this a fight where it's always going to be in the realm of possibility that GM3 could possibly pull off a reversal, a submission. I'm going to take me some GM3 here. So I'll go uh, Mearshart via submission, plus 240, not too bad of a spot. Uh, if you're looking at Fabinski, you got to think Fabinski by decision, plus 150 is the spot to go with. Um, even the overs here, you got over one and a half at minus 235, not too bad, over two and a half uh, at minus 135. That gets a little bit sketchy considering that I think that Mearshart pulls off the submission here. Uh, so yeah, I'm going Mearshart plus 240 submission. How are you seeing this one?
Yeah, I mean, I got to roll with my boy Bartos Fabinski, but I'm not going to fault you at all. I think that the live dog is Gerald Mearshart, and Mearshart's got something to prove here, right? He's coming off a couple of losses, but again, in, in Heinish and Chemayev, you know, uh, uh, both top 15 guys, it's really not that big of a problem. What is a problem is that he just gets knocked completely senseless in both of them in, what, a minute 16 against Heinish and then, like, 16 seconds against Chemayev. Like, both times just blown out of the water. Prior to that, he'd only ever been knocked out by Thiago Santos, and he took huge shots in that fight. So writing seems to be on the wall for GM3, right? 34 years old. It seems like his chin's gone. His ability to take damage. He's already got, like, nearly 40 pro fights. His best days are behind him, but... I mean, when you when you look at level of competition, he's still fighting those top fifteen guys. He's got a good submission game. He's got good cardio. He's got improving striking. Like he's definitely live against Bartos, and that Bartos is so one dimensional. Go mm -hmm. in, get the takedown, hold you down by any means necessary. It's not exactly the prettiest way to fight, but it is effective. There's no doubt about that. It is a winning strategy. It's not going to build you a ton of fans, but it is going to cash tickets. And Bartos has been good in that re regard, right? The Darren Stewart fighting cage warriors during the pandemic, it's a good example. Just get these takedowns, hold them down. His cardio doesn't look all that good. And he himself is not exactly young himself, uh, not all that young. I don't know how much better he's going to be getting, but he's so freakishly strong that he just tends to get at least a takedown. When he gets a takedown, it's whether or not you're good enough to submit him. Now, with Gerald Mearshart, he is a BJJ black belt. He does show a ton of submission victories on his record. I think he's got like he's tied for most submissions in the division. It's he has twenty three. He has twenty three out of thirty one victories via submission. So, yeah. So, so this guy, this guy's definitely going to be dangerous, right? But Prezeris had to rock Bartosz and then lock up the guillotine choke. And when you look at Andre Muniz, he's a third degree BJJ black belt and like very, very good on the ground. Other than that, it's hard to submit guys, right? It's hard to submit when you're off your back all the time. And when Bartos, if he goes out there and gets these takedowns, I don't really want to bet against him just holding him down. When you look at Jeremy Urshart, he shows 46% takedown defense in the UFC, right? That includes getting taken down by Joe, Joe Gigliotti, Ryan James, Eric Spicely, Oscar Pachoda, Jack Hermanson, Kevin Hall, and Trevin Giles, Duran Wynn. That one's pretty obvious. But he, what I'm saying is that he's been taken down by eight different opponents and shows a 46% takedown defense overall so is it crazy to think that bartos is going to get some takedowns no not crazy at all is is jeremy Urshart one of these when you look at his submissions a lot of them are like rear naked chokes a lot of them are him finding the neck but is he going to throw up a triangle or an arm bar and, and catch him like that that i'm not entirely sure so i'm kind of looking at maybe the fight goes the distance but beyond that if you are taking bartos as you said bartos by decision is the move bartos by decision is plus 150 that that's the only angle that i would look to play on this one uh personally but i i'm not gonna i'm not putting much on this at all because the deep down in the pit of my stomach i feel like those jeremy Urshard backers especially the ones that are taking submission are in for a very nice night but i can't go against my boy bartos last thing i want to sprinkle on here is that you you love those three those third round props i like, was just about to bring it up God yeah mirshart <laughs> round three 12 to one it's like dude writing's on the wall here all he's got to do yeah. is go out there put a pace at least some type of competitive pace with Bartos for two. And then the third round, Bartos is huffing and puffing, and then you snatch up the neck. He did it to Duran win. He could definitely do it here too. Yeah, I was just quickly looking through his record right now. 15 out of his 31 wins have come after round two, and I'm talking about finishes, not decision wins. He's finished guys in rounds two, three, and even five. He actually finished Sam Alvey in round five back when they used to fight each other on the regional scene. Uh, but 15 out of his 31 victories in rounds two or round three via finish. So he's definitely alive to to be resilient, You know, get through the lay and pray of Fabinski nice and early, uh, and then hopefully finish him in the second or third round here. So yeah, 12-1 for a round three. Gerald Mearshart, probably the best round three spot on this 
this card, uh, at least on, on first, first glance. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Deska Panay versus Lupita Godinez. I, I don't really have the best grip on this fight. Obviously, Jessica Panay coming off of a long layoff now. Uh, she was supposed to fight Hannah Goldie last month. That gets pulled out. She's rescheduled again, I believe, this week or last weekend to fight Hannah again, and Hannah pulls out once again. Lupita Godinez gets the call-up after she gets the uh, LFA title off of Vanessa Demopoulos a couple months ago, and she seems decent, right? She's beaten a couple of our Canadian girls. She goes out there and beats uh, um, Lindsay Garbat. Uh, I believe that happened in Burlington, if I'm not mistaken, at BTC Fight Promo. Um, she goes out there, just outstrikes her, lands a couple good takedowns. In the Vanessa Demopoulos fight, she shows great uh, striking, solid power on her combinations as well. You could definitely see the damage on um, uh, Demopoulos' face even after just that first round. Uh, and I think that's kind of the approach you'll take here against Panay is just move forward, land the big shots on the feet, and try to stuff the takedowns of Panay because that's where Jessica does her best work, right, is getting the fight to the ground, getting her jiu-jitsu going and try to, like, submit some of these girls and, and just, just rack it up that way. But, like, three straight losses, and it's weird to think that, like, three fights ago, she was fighting Ioana and Jacek for the, for the title. Like, and that was the Ioana and Jacek's first defense of her title after she had captured it from Carla Esparza. So, yeah, Jessica Penny's been out of the cage for a while, dealing with a bunch of USADA bullshit, um, and, and now she's taking on a UFC newcomer who, again, not just newcomer, she's only 5-0, and oh, so she's still kind of green. She's still kind of raw, but I do like what we see from her on the feet here. Um it's just really hard to go out there and trust a girl at minus 275 considering she's never really fought, uh, you know, to this level of competition before. You know, I know Jessica Penny has been out of the cage for as long as she has, but she's been in there with some greats and she's definitely shown off some solid skills of her own. I believe it was her... One of the first ever like legitimate submissions I saw when I became a hardcore fan was when she went out there and submitted Naho Sugiyama uh, at Invicta FC3. I'm not sure if you remember that one, but the way she set that triangle choke up was just a thing of beauty. And I, I've always been in love with that submission for some reason, just because of how crafty she was able to set it up with her legs and, and trapping the arm and all that type of stuff. So she does have a high-level jiu-jitsu game, but is, this, is she going to be able to get the fight down to the ground to truly get that going? And I'm not a big reliever of her wrestling game. I'm not sure if that that's something that she be able to implement here against uh godinas who seems like a hot prospect but i'm not willing to play minus 275 at this point in time which is why you guys come to this propping you up show so we can get you guys better numbers on girls that are or, or fighters that are in the minus 250 minus 300 range so i i think penne is is quite durable you know yuano and jaycheck just completely overwhelmed her and got her out there via tko but more often than not when Panay is losing, it's via decision and i'm expecting the same thing here with godinas just outstriking her over 15 minutes uh, minus 115 for Godinez by decision is not a bad line. Obviously, the totals are juiced to shit over one and a half. Minus 535 over two and a half, minus 325. Even fight go to decision, minus 280. That's probably parlayable territory. But yeah, I like Godinez here. Uh, not with the utmost confidence, though, because I want to see her prove herself against girls that are, you know, not Lindsay Garbat and not Vanessa Demopoulos. Uh, and then I'd be more confident playing her at minus 275 here. But this seems like a fight that she should go out there and cruise and win. How do you feel about this one? It comes down to wrestling, really. If Panay is able to get one of those head and arm throws or is able to complete a takedown and get on top of Godinez, then we're going to have a problem here. But uh, outside of that, I think she's going to get boxed up. It would almost be borderline irresponsible to bet Penny on the basis of She's been away from the sport now, effectively like a week away from a four-year anniversary. Yeah. She hasn't fought four years, but she left the sport. She was 34, and she got boxed up by Danielle Taylor. Now she's coming back at 38, and she's taking on a far more competent striker than Danielle Taylor. Has she made these drastic improvements? I don't know. Being at a line MMA, 
You know, Dominic Cruz, he's a guy that's come off the shelf. He's a guy that's just known to be in the gym all the time and, and work. But Dominic Cruz is a guy that's got the money. Dominic yeah. Cruz got a commentating gig. Dominic Cruz can train when he wants at the level he wants. Jessica Panay would have had to have gone and got another job for the last four years. Only fans, Train. my man. She's got an only fans. My, and, and who? <laughs> I want to I meet the man who subscribed to that. Men, um, apparently. Men. There's plural out there. <laughs> or women. Who knows, right? Or women. Yeah, if that's, her, if judge, that's her problem. Right? If, if she's making your money that way, like, you know, good on her. But uh, <laughs> she's competing against, like, Beck Rawlings and Jessica I. So, yeah. I don't know what the market's like. I don't know if it's oversaturated or not. Um, what I'm getting at is just like you, you, you had to have put your fight career on the sidelines for the last four years, and now you're coming back in the sport as a 38-year-old with that much ring rust. Like It's just writing on the wall for disaster. When you look at Godinez, you mentioned the fact that she's got some win you know, over Lindsay Garbett, the Canadian. She, she really is Canadian, Her, I, I believe so. She's born in Mexico. But uh, she's been fighting, her entire amateur career was in Vancouver. She lives and trains full-time out of Vancouver. She's been here for like 10 years or something. She's got that boxing. She's got that heritage. She's got that background. But going over to Titans MMA in, in BC, working on the ground game, filling it out, I think she's come a long way. I think she's doing a good job, right? When you see her in the Vanessa Demopoulos fight, same thing with the Lindsay Garbett fight. Lindsay Garbett is a pro boxer, right? A girl that fought professionally for a yeah. world title in China, has traveled the world, has good hands. Also trains out of probably, in my opinion, one of the best gyms in all of Canada at a Parabellum, right? Just a plethora of great training partners at her disposal. This girl is dangerous. She's a little bit old. She's a little bit long in the tooth. But she was like a hair away from getting onto the Ultimate Fighter and being on that same season as Jessica Panay. To see Godinez just go out there and work her over five rounds, it's like, okay, she's 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 good. She wins the title. She takes the LFA fight against Vanessa Demopoulos, gets tired in the fifth, gets mounted by Vanessa Demopoulos. But for the first three rounds, I mean, she's absolutely just painting a picture on her, busting her up, beating her very handedly. The difference there is that Vanessa Demopoulos has zero wrestling. Great grappling, zero wrestling. Also has very awful striking. You know, tends to run head first into strikes a lot of the time. Yeah, I, I like her. She's my baby. But uh, not not exactly the greatest wrestling or stand-up game. Panay's better wrestling. Panay's got better striking. So if she can strike a little more competently and hopefully score a takedown or two, then she becomes a real problem because she does have that jiu-jitsu. She does have that grappling. But I, I think Godinez puts it on her. I think Godinez gets the victory. I think this is probably going the distance. And as we talked about in the last fight, like if you're looking for a third-round prop play, I would say that Godinez uh, by finish in the third, it's 15-1, to one, right? Mm. But realistically, when you think about how this fight plays out, Jessica Panay is very hittable, right? That's been kind of a hallmark throughout her career. And she gets busted up. You know, as the nose breaks, it gets bleeding. Yeah, Jessica and Draja and Joanny and Jacek are, you know, amongst the three or four absolute best strikers the division's ever seen, right? So getting finished by them, no big deal. But that's also getting finished by them five, six years ago. You know, a lot's changed since then. She's a lot older now. And if Godinez, who is a very good boxer, someone who goes out there and puts it on you, she's not fighting five rounds this time. She's only fighting three rounds this time. She goes out there and puts a pressure on her, backs her up against the cage, and unloads on her. I can see her breaking her down slowly. Once the nose is broken and it's bleeding, you're breathing out of your mouth. Once you're breathing out of your mouth, you're you're you know you're you're open for that shot. You're tired. You're up against the cage. Four years away from sport, long time away. Thirty-eight years old. These in this weight class where it's a it's a young person's game. Like heavyweight, you get away with thirty-eight. Light heavyweight, you get away with thirty-eight. Once you're fighting at one hundred and fifteen pounds, like you yeah. don't get away with thirty-eight. So I'd be interesting to see what Penang shows up and looks like, but. I'd have to go Godinez. The only play that I would like outside of maybe a, a sprinkle play punt on that third round finish would be a Godinez by decision. If it doesn't happen in the third, 
If it does, even great. I'll hit that 15 to 1. But I just think she's just going to batter her standing, hopefully keep the fight standing for two of the three rounds, and then uh, should be able to get this to the decision. Yeah, I feel bad for Jessica Penny to have to come back to this type of fight. Like, it's pretty much a lose lose. You got a UFC debutante, and, you know, even if you beat her, people are just going to be like, okay, maybe she wasn't ready for the UFC at this point in time. So, yeah, I, I like the Godina spot here. Godina's round three, 15 to one, doesn't sound like a bad spot either, especially considering that uh, Jessica Penny might have some ring rust on her, and this power and combination work of Godina's might be a little bit too much. All right. Let's get to the fight of the weekend. I'm not talking about way more hype than Jake Paul and Ben Askren, way more hype than Robert Whitaker and Kelvin Gastelum. Everybody's talking about, even the whole chat has been talking about Juan Espino versus Alexander Romanov the entire time. So let's give it to them. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to hearing what your take is on this one. I've purposely refrained from listening to your dog or pad pot. Dog or past podcast in uh, in anticipation of hearing what uh, what your thoughts are on it, but I'm going to be going on the Alexander Romanov side of things. I'm going to be going with the younger guy here. Um, surprisingly, he's actually not going to be the bigger guy here, which uh, kind of stumped me when I first looked at the metrics of this fight. You got uh, Espino that's going to have like a five inch reach advantage as well as a one inch height advantage. Uh, he's probably the better technical wrestler in this spot too, given his background and where he's been coming from. I believe he fought on this or competed on this African Wrestling Federation thing or something where he's just going out there and competing against other big African dudes and just taking them down. And, and you can see the technique in his takedowns whenever he is competing in MMA. And his only loss was a nine-second knockout to former Bellator heavyweight champion Vitaly Minikov. But if you watch that fight, you just you, you can't even recognize Juan Espino, right? You're talking about a 60 pounds heavier Juan Espino who just didn't even seem like he knew how to move his hands or even box or anything like that. So I, I'm writing that one off. I'm not saying that has anything to do with what we're going to see this weekend against Alexander Romanov. The issue with Espino is there's not a whole lot out there on him outside of what we saw him on tough and then obviously that Minikov fight. But we've never seen him on his back. We've never seen him truly, you know, challenged in the striking realm. And in terms of striking, the only thing I really think he has is like a faint takedown into an overhand right. I haven't seen anything else from him on the feet. More often than not, he's able to complete takedowns time and time against, against his opponents and then either one lay on them for 10 minutes like he did against Ben Sassoli or to pull off a scarf hold chokes like he did against Jeff Hughes last time around. Whereas Alexander Romanov, there's a lot more meat on the bone in terms of finding out what this guy brings to the table. He's undefeated, 13-0, and has had some solid victories on uh, under his belt uh, on the regional scenes. Virgil Zwicker is one guy that, that comes to mind, and obviously Zwicker is like 30 high in the high 38s at that point in time uh, and he just absolutely ragdolled him in that fight but this guy is very va agile very flexible very explosive given his stature and that's kind of surprising to see for somebody you know his size and his height and his weight uh throws a lot of spinning shit a lot of flying shit you know it seems a little bit more comfortable on the feet compared to what i've been seeing from espino and uh, the one thing that i'm not really a fan of with espino is at times, it seems to struggle to hold guys down, right? At times, it seems like guys are able to get back to their feet and uh, without much uh, effort either, other than Ben Sassoli, who just doesn't seem to know how to get up off of his back at all anyway. But like, there are times where guys are able to get back up uh, off of uh, Juan Espino, and then Espino, obviously, high-level wrestler, gets the fight back to the ground and just gets some game going again. But how is it going to look here against Romanov, who's probably the best wrestler they've fought up until this point? And I find it very weird that Romanov moved from Moldova to Baltimore, Maryland, who the fuck is in Maryland right now uh, that, he, that he wants to go out there and train with? But he seems to have made a little bit of a, a solid camp over there. I've seen him training with the, the college team over there as well, too. That's been helping him kind of refine his wrestling game. 
And even though he seems the more brutish and flashy wrestler here, you know, fucking throwing guys over his head and, and just completely demolishing these guys when it comes to the wrestling exchanges, I still feel like he might be a little bit more effective the longer this, this fight goes. We've seen just wiki-capping Juan Espino. He took Rodney Wallace 15 minutes and decisions in there. But we have no idea what that fight looks like. And if I'm not mistaken, Rodney Wallace is a 205-er. So how, how big of a win is that truly on his record? Whereas Alexander Romanov, there is tape of him going a hard three rounds against other opponents taking them down and then finishing them in the third round we've seen him on his back for 30 to 40 seconds against sultan mertazaliev where he gets taken down off of a sloppy leg kick that mertazaliev capitalizes on takes him down and then you know sits on top of him for 30 to 40 seconds and romanov is uh quickly back to his feet i think that romanov will get back to his feet relatively easy here against juan espino i think at a certain point even though you can get away with being 38 40 42 years old at heavyweight i think the youth is going to start to show here for romanov who should be the more explosive guy here who should be the stronger guy at the end of the day and should have more tools in his toolbox to go out there and dispose of espino so I'm on the Romanov train in terms of this fight might be close in that first round, but I think he starts to take over in that second round, starts to plant Espino on his back, and maybe come home with the TKO victory uh, probably in that second round after just overwhelming Espino. Espino's a great hammer, but how is he as a nail? And we've only seen him as a nail in that uh, Vitaly Minikov fight, but that's not ah, the, the yeah, nine seconds of it. <laughs> exactly. That, that's the thing. We've never seen him stretch beyond that, right? That's the only question marks is that we just – we haven't seen Espino in many compromising positions. So this is all hypothetical and based off of pretty much what we've seen from Alexander Romanov and what we think Espino will look like in those situations when he's not the one getting takedowns and he's not the one dictating where the fight is going. So there's so many hypotheticals in terms of how this fight could go. But given the information that I have, I got to go with Romanov and I'm going to be going with the TKO probably round two, maybe some Donkey Kong punches, whatever the hell it is. But I think he's going to wear out Juan Espino given the grappling uh, sequences that we're going to get here. So I like Romanov, obviously minus 135 is not too bad of a line on the money line. Uh, Romanov TKO plus 250. Um, and another thing I want to say here, Espino seems more of a, a guy that goes for submissions over TKO. So if you're looking to back Espino, probably back that submission line if you think it gets it done inside the distance compared to the TKO. Uh, and then lastly, Espino in round, or sorry, Romanov in round two plus 525, not a bad spot either. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, listen, I'm a big Romanov believer. I think that this guy's going to be a, a good injection into the heavyweight division. He's only 30 years old, and he's got that wrestling. That's not something you see at, at heavyweight. He's got two things you don't see a ton at heavyweight, right? A good, solid wrestling game and great cardio. And, and I think those are two weapons that are going to take you very far in this game. Look at Curtis Blades, man. Curtis Blades... <laughs> Apparently can't take a punch. Well, no. I get yeah, that's very unfair to say, right? Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou knock you yeah. out, and you can't take a punch, right? Duke can take an excellent punch. Uh, yeah. Apparently not at that level, but he, he doesn't need to strike. All he needs to do is just use his wrestling and use his cardio, and it's take him to the top five of the division. Romanov's very unpolished still. He's thirteen and zero. He's still going to probably have to learn a few things here and there. But it's like there's a lot that you can like from him. First of all, he's a former sumo wrestler. Yeah. He's also a former Moldovan amateur wrestling champion. Now, think about if you had Ion Kudalaba, and he Ion Kudalaba with 15 minutes of good cardio. He'd be a problem, man, yeah. because he's so wild, he's so reckless, but he's a serious threat. He's got that power game, and Kudalaba's also a guy that's a European sambo champion. He's very strong. I see a lot that I like out of... Uh, out of these Moldovan fighters, like they're very strong. It's whether they can keep that up. And Alexander Romanov, for a guy that weighs 260 pounds, is a former uh, sumo wrestler. He's got excellent cardio, and I think that's going to be a big play here. When you look at his record, he shows a lot of first-round finishes, sure. But most, more so, the fight with Sultan Mertaziliev, which is it. a third-round finish. And even the Roke Martinez fight, right? 
Yeah. Uh, against Roque Martinez, it goes late into the second round, but, I mean, he's just sitting on his chest, raining down punishment on it. It's like, oh, my God, this guy's not going anywhere. This is going to be a problem. And you see him against Marcos Rogério de Lima. I basically got my house on this guy, right? <laughs> like, and I, I'm scared in the first two, three minutes, man. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, shit. He's not able to take Marcos Rogério de Lima down, which is, which is, I mean, come on. If you're not taking him down, what do we got here? And his leg's getting chewed up. And his striking looks super stiff. We've got a problem here, but goes to cardio. We know Delima has absolutely none of it, Dodge and Romanov card. does, and so he just eventually gets the fight to the ground. And when he gets the fight to the ground, he forearm chokes him, which is strange because Delima is apparently a black belch. <laughs> uh, how do you get a forearm choke a man in the UFC? I know, but it's it's that grind. He just eventually gets you down, and when he does get you down, you've got two hundred and sixty pound. Moldovan sumo wrestler on top of you you do get tired you do start to make mistakes he wears on you and then he's able to take you out if you want if he gets you in the first great but if he doesn't it's great that that can continue now when you look at Juan Espino right it's almost like polar opposite you don't see a fighter building up you see one we got Romanov 30 great young exciting guy comes in the division he could realistically fight for the next 10 years in the division Espino he is at that 10-year mark he's 40 years old so when you look at his record, right, you want to talk about that Vitaly Minikov fight. Oh, so that was a fucking setup. It's, it's S70, <laughs> Russia, Russia versus Spain, right? Yeah. And uh, in case you were in wondering, Russia. yeah, in case you were wondering, Russia went undefeated. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he loses in nine seconds. He gets knocked out. That's not the problem. The problem is that after he got knocked out, it chased him away from the sport for six years. He was 30 years old when he lost to Vitaly Minikov. When he came back to the sport, he was a 36-year-old man. So now he gets Jimmy Van Bemelen, 0-2. The Rodney Wallace fight, you're, you mentioned Rodney Wallace is a 205-er, absolutely. And probably realistically could have made 185 pounds. He's not a very tall guy by stature. That was at the end of his run also. You know, uh, Dietrich Barhamaj, 13-12. Yuri Gorbeko, 12-40. Martin Budai, 1-0. And, and that's all in 2017. He fights like, he goes from not fighting for six years, just wrestling and grappling, to coming back to the sport and just fighting like eight times in the same year against absolute nobodies. Runs up a good record, gets on the ultimate fighter, but beats Ben Sassoli by decision. Ben Sassoli's currently serving two and a half years in prison <laughs> for punching a guy out in a bar, all right? So beats Ben Sassoli. Then he beats Maurice Green. Well, that one's pretty obvious. Green's a six foot seven kickboxer, like favorable matchup. So he's going to get the victory there. He gets the victory there. This is really interesting to me. He's fighting Justin Fraser in the finals, and he's lined as a minus 170 favorite. That was weird. Nobody That's... has any faith in the guy, right? Yeah. But Justin Fraser didn't even get signed by the UFC, by the way. He lost that fight. When do you see an ultimate fighter runner-up not get signed to the promotion? Because, again, the, they, they were that. That's how little they thought of that heavyweight division or that uh, tough season for the heavyweights. That's how little that, that they had invested in it. So... He he defeats he defeats Justin Frazier. That's fine, and he draws Jeff Hughes, and he looks good in the Jeff Hughes fight. But but again, it's Jeff Hughes gets on top of him, gets the submission. So is he is he a product of right place, right time? Like has he fought really soft guys and given a good account of himself? And now as a forty year old man, everybody's just massively on him. Or do we like Romanov, thirteen and 0, 30 years old? making big improvements, has a good cast tank, has shown us that he can fight into the third round, has those intangibles. Like, I feel like you got to go Romanov. I don't know exactly how Romanov gets it done, whether it be inside the distance or... Okay, here's one thing we got to straight up say. The way he was sitting on Mark Roque Martinez's chest like that, that's not good grappling, no. right? 
I would I would suggest that he's very raw and brute, but positionally not very sound. Juan Espino is very positionally sound. He uh, also me, trains out of American there. top team, and they'll have a much better game plan. I am worried about the grappling. If Espino scores the takedown first and is on top, I am worried about that. But I have a feeling that Romanov will be able to just grind and eventually get the job done. And so for that reason, I'm going to take Romanov. As far as a prop goes, because I know this is a prop show, uh, the over one and a half, minus 125. If Romanov gets his way, as we talked about, he likes to grind these guys, he likes to grind. And if Espino's going to win, is he going to submit him in the first round? Possible. But I'd like to think that he catches him down the line a little bit. So the best prop I like on this one is the over one and a half. Outside of that, I'm just going to, I'm going team Romanov. Yeah, we did have somebody in the chat actually talking about the over one and a half and asking about that. And I do agree. I think this fight, if it does finish, is probably going to be in the second or third round. But the one thing I do want to say about uh, Romanov sitting on Roki Martinez's chest, it seemed like he was just kind of pissed off that he's just like, I don't know what to, what to do to get this guy out of there, right? He's on, he's in full mount. He's on neon belly. He's pretty much in every single position you could have that's dominant on top of a guy and just couldn't get Roki Martinez out of there. You know, he's Donkey Kong punching him, doing everything that he can, but Roki Martinez is blocking and, and defending well enough that the referee didn't end up stopping it. So I think that that sitting on his chest thing was just out of frustration. He's like, fuck, I don't know what to do anymore, man. Like, my yeah, knees maybe. are getting tired trying to be fucking... <laughs> my knees are tired being in full mount here for as long as I am. But yeah, this is, this is a great fight, right? People are going to be super convicted on one side. They're going to be super convicted on the other. But this is going to be a very, very competitive fight. And uh, there's so many hypotheticals. There's just so much unknown, more so on the Espino side than the Romanov side. So I think we'll find out a lot about, about both guys in this fight. I'm very, very much looking forward to it. Damn, it's going to be super fun. All right. Let's move on to the next one. I believe this is the prelim headliner. We got Tracy Cortez coming in as a heavy uh, heavy favorite here. Minus 275, plus 235 for Justine Kish. And I love me some Tracy Cortez in this spot, right? Like, how can you not? If Justine Kish has had a little bit more sauce on her shots, had a little bit more power behind her strikes, then maybe it would be a little bit more iffy for Tracy. But, you know, Kish is more of like a, a, a an out point or a decision machine. You know, she was like a couple of seconds away from being Sabina Mazzo over 15 minutes. You know, just using the style that she does, which is crowd your opponents, stay in front of their face, pressure them, don't give them the space that Sabina Mazzo needs to, to get her strikes off. She slipped up for one second, pretty much, and ate a clean head kick and then got club and subbed uh, at the end there. But she was on, on route to cashing as a plus 180 dog that night. Unfortunately for her, this isn't Sabina Mazzo. This isn't a striker that she's going up against. She's going up against a very strong wrestler here in Tracy Cortez, fight ready trained Eddie Cha, Santino DeFranco. You know the you know the camp down there. Very high level guys that they have. And apparently she's been training wrestling for a very long time, and you can see it in her fights. She only has one loss, which is her pro debut, where she was beating the piss out of this girl, and then eventually got submitted via guillotine. But since then, she's been undefeated. She's been shoring up her issues, and obviously the weakest part of her game is her striking. But I think we've been seeing an improvement on a fight-to-fight -fight basis for her. She's throwing with more confidence. She's throwing with a little bit more zest on her shots. She's throwing in combinations. And that's what I'm really liking, uh, really like to see out of her. But at the end of the day, it's the bread and butter is the takedowns. It's the wrestling. It's the clinch game. It's the wear on you and, and not let you get your own game off. And I found it very impressive that she was able to do it at 135 pounds for the last two fights uh, against Vanessa Mello and Stephanie Egger. And again, obviously not the highest level of opponents, but is Justine Kish higher level of an opponent than those women either? Probably not. I mean, she obviously has a lot more UFC experience than those women, but she doesn't bring too much else to the table here. That, uh, you know, Vanessa Mel, like we saw her go out there and just completely piece up Sarah Moraes for over three rounds uh, with solid striking. 
Tracy Cortez, or sorry, uh, Justine Kish might have that type of striking, but is she really going to be able to get that game going while she's thinking about and worrying about the takedown game that's going to be coming back her way from Tracy here? So I like Tracy to go out there, grind this fight out, get the takedowns, make it look similar to that Felice Herrig fight that uh, Justine Kish had over four fights ago where uh, Herrig was able to accumulate over nine and a half minutes of control time. And the thing about Kish is she doesn't really have the greatest, te greatest technical get-ups, right? She's just powering through everything. And I don't think she's going to be the stronger woman here against Cortez, especially when Cortez is holding that top position. Now, Keish was able to land a couple of reversals against Ashley Yoder, but Yoder isn't the strongest on top, right? She's she's more of a submission over position type of girl as well. Like the more 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 often than not, when you when you see in that fight, she's getting reversed when she's going for a choke or an armbar or whatever the hell it is. Justin Kish does a good job of getting out of those positions. But then Felice Herrick, she's just like, I'm gonna stay on top of you and land the good enough shots that the referee's not gonna stand us up, which is why she was able to, you know, control that fight for over 66% of that fight. I think Cortez is going to do the same thing here, if not better. I think this this is the best wrestler that Keisha's fought over her last several fights. I think Cortez is going to give her a ton of trouble, which is why she's a minus 275 favorite. You can completely understand that. So let's make that line a bit better. How do we make that line better? Cortez is not notoriously a finisher. Justine Kish is quite durable outside that head kick that sent her head into orbit against Sabina Mazzo. But I'm expecting Cortez to go out there and just grind her out over 15 minutes. So Cortez, via decision, minus 150. Seems like a pretty good spot to me, right? Justine Kish, the only way I'd be more concerned about this is if we had the knockout threat from Kish, but we don't, right? If she goes out there and tries to pull the same game plan as she did against Mazo, she's going to find herself on her butt relatively quickly. So I like Cortez here, minus 150 on that decision prop. I think that's a solid spot. Or even if you don't want to look at you know, either woman by, by decision, you're still getting minus 345 for the over two and a half. So yeah, you're going to want to pick a side here and you're going to want to pick the decision prop. Luckily for me, I'm going with the Cortez side. I think she's a very safe spot on this card and via decision, probably the safest bet on the card too. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, I think that Tracy Cortez, uh, I think she gets the job done. I, I Basically, there's not a whole lot that I can add on there. I mean, uh, minus yeah. 150 for Cortez by decision, I think that's the move. She's got the wrestling advantage. You've seen it in all of her fights. She likes to go routinely to it. Mary Agapova, right? It's like Agapova's got that striking. We know about it, but just grounds her four times, cruises on the decision. The Vanessa Mello fight, two takedowns, cruises on the decision. And then the last time out against Stephanie Egger. Stephanie Egger is big, like yeah. big and strong in a, a, a high-level judo black belt. And it didn't matter, you know, she just, she grinded her, eventually took her down and worked her over. She's still only 27 years old and out of fight ready MMA, like the camp is just absolutely on fire right now. They got a lot of fighters preparing for fights. I know a Henry Corrales is fighting um, in Bellator. Hunter Azer just fought. Dan Moret totally screwed my Bellator <laughs> plays last week. Like, good God. Yeah. You got Henry Cejudo, you know, uh, Patricio Pitbull frequents the gym. Korean Zombie frequents the gym. Uh, it's just like they're in a really good spot right now. They're churning out a lot of good fighters, and I think that they've got world-class uh, coaching. This is a girl who her brother fought Drew Fickett, like Drew the Master Fickett, back, the Knight Rider Drew Fickett, back in the day, right? And uh, he was like 2-0 and at the time. And Drew Fickett was like, had 60 pro fights, had fought in the UFC, and her, her older brother beat him, right? Then her older brother ends up passing away, and she's like, I'm going to carry on his legacy, and I'm going to do this fighting thing in his memory. And like, Boy, oh boy, is she taking it seriously. She is very committed to this game. You talked about the fact that she was submitted in her debut in, in an Invicta card. You know, she did herself no favors by fighting at the highest level of women's MMA in Invicta prior to getting going. But 
just takes tough fights and goes out there and makes these improvements. And I think that wrestling in this division is going to take you very far. When you look at Justine Keish, Justine Keish is super strong. That's her best asset is that she's a little bit raw everywhere, but she's a very physically strong girl. She does like to move through the pocket. She does like to make it kind of a, a dirty fight. But, you know, how do you, how do you defeat her? You score those takedowns. I mean, Felice Harry kind of laid out the blueprint that you can just time out a well-placed takedown. She just walks straight forward on a straight line. Like, it's, the takedown is there for you to pursue. And once you get her on the ground, she's just she's physically strong but she's not really good off her back. She muscles all of her techniques. Is she getting better? Potentially. But this is someone who had, remember when she was on the Ultimate Fighter, she had to bow out of the season because yeah. she just like, her knee was just shredded. And they told her then and there, they're like, doesn't look too good. But she battles her way back. She makes it to the UFC. It's just, I don't know that she's ever really going to get to that level. A, a win over Sabina Mazzo would have been huge for her because Sabina Mazzo was an overhyped prospect who's still very, very, very young. Like probably will be pretty decent down the road. But at this stage in her career, like this is the time to defeat her. And you see her, Justine Quiche go out there, take advantage of all these mistakes, take advantage of the fact that she's really great, and then her, her herself lose the fight on a mistake, you know? So is she going to get much better than this? I'm not entirely sure. But when I think about Tracy Cortez, I think that she's got a lot more room to grow. She's got a lot more room to improve and get better. And the wrestling is going to be key here. Go get those takedowns. Uh, the obvious joke, and I'm sure everyone's heard it a million times at this point, is that you know Quiche quite literally shit her pants trying to get off her back against Felice Herrig. So what's going to happen when Tracy Cortez, who's far bigger than Felice Herrig, are you kidding me? Felice Herrig's a natural strawweight. Yeah. Fights at 115. This girl's coming down from 135 to 125. going to be awesome. And so the last thing I want to mention is that if for whatever reason it's a botched weight cut and Tracy Cortez you know, is really tired and feeling it because Keish doesn't go anywhere, you know, if you're not going to finish her, and I think this is going the distance, she is live in the third round, certainly. It's like Keish doesn't have the finishing ability to take Tracy out. So Tracy just really needs to score takedowns in the first two rounds and then just survive, right? So for that reason, I am going to go Tracy Cortez. As far as the money line goes, she's one of the bigger favorites on the card. But if you take that Cortez by decision, um, minus 150, I think that's the move. You're obviously on the same page as that as well. So I think we're on the pretty much on the same play. Yeah, I don't think we need to worry about Cortez in terms of her weight, right? Coming down to 125, that's where she historically is. Like, she's normally a 125-er. I believe she only took those 135 fights to remain active. That's pretty much all it is, to, especially that Vanessa Mello fight that only took place a couple months after she won that Contender Series fight, which ultimately gave her that, that contract. So she's like, just give me a fight. I don't give a fuck if it's 125, 135. So I think she'll be good. Uh, and she's gotten a hard 15 in the past at 125. So yeah, I really like her in this spot. And I'm glad that you think the same thing. All right, that brings us to our main card. And we're closing in on that 200 live viewer mark. Ooh, it feels like the good old days when we were, we're on odds over there. So I'm glad that the majority of people have hopped on over. Make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe, show us that you guys love the show, which I'm sure you guys do. This is this is pretty much everybody's favorite show of, of Fight Week. Let, let's just put it out there. I'm going to be honest. I don't want to pat myself on the back here, but uh, I know me and Cody are killing it with the show. So appreciate all the support that everybody's throwing out there for us. All right, let's get to the main card here. We got Luis Pena going up against Alex Munoz. And this one is a weird one, right? Luis Pena and Dracar Close were scheduled to fight each other a couple weeks ago. Now they're on the same card, not fighting each other. I, I think that was a missed opportunity for these guys to, you know, you guys put in a training camp to fight each other. Why the fuck did they not just, just schedule each other to fight each other? But it is what it is. You got Luis Pena going up against Alex Munoz here, who apparently is the head uh, wrestling coach over there at Team Alpha Male. But he's a good wrestling background to the game. He was down there at Team Takedown as well with Johnny Hendricks years ago. Uh, and then obviously that whole, 
organization imploded. And Alex Munoz now finds himself in Sacramento at Team Alpha Male. Obviously, a good wrestling game. We didn't really get to see it in this fight against Troy Lamson, which was the one right before the UFC. That's where we had two wrestlers end up pretty much having a striking battle. And uh, Alex Munoz comes out on the winning end there. Uh, he's also somewhat infamous for uh, beating Nick Newell on the contender series. Didn't have a good enough of performance to actually get a contract that night, but did quickly get into the UFC after that Troy Lamson fight right afterwards. Comes in and fights Nazrat Hackprast. A very tough fight for him to come back or to, to come into the UFC against. And he lands a takedown right off the bat, right off the bat. Luckily for Nazareth, gets back to his feet relatively quickly and then just batters him on the feet for, for the majority of 15 minutes. So what can we take out of that fight for Alex Munoz? Probably that he's durable, he has a good chin, and he can take a solid punch. Does Luis Pena punch harder or strike harder than Nazareth Hackprest? I don't think so. He's he's a little bit more diverse in his striking approach. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. But I don't think he has the power. If uh, if Nazareth wasn't able to knock out Munoz, I don't think that we'll see Pena knock out Munoz. Now, here's my issue with Luis Pena. He seems like he's teetering onto that overrated territory now, right? He had a huge ceiling on him after he came off the Ultimate Fighter. Everybody's like, this guy's the next big thing. I bet him in his, or actually I had bet the under two and a half in his uh, debut against Richie Smolin as I felt like he's going to go batter that poor kid and that's exactly what he did. But he's been pretty much falling flat in a lot of his performances, most notably the last one against Kamal Worthy where he gets choked out against the cage. But first round, doesn't even attempt to take down and let's come over the outstrike him in that first round. Loses that first round. Goes to his takedowns in the second round and has a lot of success there. Has a, a ton of uh, submission attempts. Just not able to get Kama out there. And then in the third round, ultimately gets guillotine choked. My issue with Pena is... 47% takedown defense. You bet your ass Alex Munoz is going to test that. You bet your ass Alex Munoz is going to try to put him on his butt. And uh, that, that's why I'm kind of leaning the dog here. Now, his striking is obviously not to the level of Luis Pena. Not saying that Luis Pena is a lot of Sanya or anything like that. But Pena, uh, Munoz has a lot of work to do in that in, in that realm still. But I, I, it's too... It's too much of a factor for me to back Luis Pena here, considering how bad his takedown defense is. And yeah, he has decent, you know, uh, work off of his back. His jiu-jitsu is not that bad, and he's able to really get into these weird, awkward positions, considering, uh, you know, his weird, lanky frame that he has at this weight class. But I feel like Alex Munoz will be good enough from the top position to nullify any takedown or, or submission attempts or reversal attempts, and kind of just wear on him from on top. I don't have the utmost confidence in this spot, but I do think that Munoz is a solid underdog this weekend. Uh, and I think he's just, it's just going to be him landing takedowns over and over again. The line is starting to widen a bit with money coming in on Luis Pena, um, but but I still do lean Munoz here. So obviously, I'm going to be going with Munoz by decision at plus 285, which isn't a bad spot. But like I need to see more from Munoz before I can truly ride off into the sunset thinking that this is a great bet. Um, Pena still has room to grow. Munoz still has room to grow, even though he's 31 years old. But we need to see him round out his MMA game a little bit more before we can say that he can actually be a threat uh, in this division in the UFC. But I think his wrestling is going to get it done for him here. I think it'll be good enough to take down Pena time and time again, grind him out, and take this fight via decision. How are you taking this one? Yeah, dude. I mean, we're on the same page again. I think Alex Munoz is super live Jeez. here. I mean, when you when you look at Luis Pena, takedown defense is definitely an issue. So this is his run in the UFC. Richie Smolin took him down twice. Mike Trezano beat him, took him down once. Steven Peterson, four times. Matt Wyman, once. Matt Frivola, four times. Steve Garcia, once. And Kama Worthy. Kama Worthy, the only guy that didn't take him down because he shot no takedown. Uh, submit him in the guillotine in the third round. Like, only got to finish him. Like, not, not a good look. All three of his pro losses, or sorry, his losses in the UFC, Kama Worthy, Matt Frivola, and Mike Trezano. He's the favorite in all of those spots. So here's a guy that routinely does lose as the favorite and has takedown defense issues. 
being six foot three, man, God damn, that's big for the weight class. But it's like your blessing is your curse. Can he play that long rangey outside game where he pieces up guys? I mean, he doesn't, but could he? Yeah, he's six foot three when he is on the ground. You know, he's got a really good back take. I mean, that's one thing I'll give him. He's really good at finding the back, putting the body triangle in. And once he does, you're not going anywhere. You saw that in the Steve Garcia fight. As soon as he gets it on him, he's not going anywhere. The Matt Wyman fight, he's not going anywhere. The one round he did win against Kamalworthy, the second round, he backpacks him. It's the same thing. But backpacking is not exactly the way to win a fight. You got to do more than that. Pena just doesn't really seem to have that finishing ability quite yet. And I mean, he spent like three years at American Kickboxing Academy working with the likes of Habib and Islam Makachev and the absolute best guys, and it didn't help him. Now he's on American Top Team. It just, again, you don't see the improvements quite yet. I'm sure if this guy was to realize his potential and become the guy that a lot of people thought that he might be, then yes, guy's the limit. It looks like he could have a lot of potential. It just seems like he never quite achieves it, whether it's a mental lapse or he's just not that good. I don't know. It never really comes to fruition. So when I look at this fight with Alex Munoz, it's like right away you've got a serious problem in your hands and that Alex Munoz is just a wrestling machine. Call him one-dimensional if you will. He's a wrestling machine. He's a two-time Texas State wrestling champion. He Also, his high school wrestling coach is Kenny Monday. Like, <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Goes to college, wrestles for Oklahoma State University. Now, mind you, He's not an all-American. He's not a guy that had a particularly great record. I think he was eight and ten in his first year and like eleven and eight in his second year. However, wrestling at OSU is uh, on a completely different level, right? They only recruit the best of the best. That's why Cormier went there. That's why Johnny Hendricks, one of the best collegiate wrestlers, went there. That's why Jared Rochalt went there, right? It's an extremely high-level school. So he wasn't the starter, but wrestling on that squad, it really does mean something. Now, Team Takedown, this is interesting. Team Takedown had an agreement that they would take these high-level wrestlers out of school that they believed had a wrestling for MMA style. And Team Takedown would, would pay all of your bills. You move into the facility, they pay for your rent, they pay for your car, they pay for your supplements, they pay for your food, they pay for your training, they pay for your clothes, they pay for your travel, they pay for everything. In return, they got like 50% of what you made. Yeah. And so the only guy that it really benefited was Johnny Hendricks. He won a UFC title. They made a bit of money on him. But they did the same thing for Chaz Skelly and Jared Rochalt and uh, Jake Rochalt, his brother, actually, who's a fantastic collegiate wrestler, by the way. But it's it wasn't a very good deal. What I'm saying is they, that team recruited him. They had a good eye because both Rochalt brothers made the UFC. Uh, one-dimensional wrestlers, by the way. Johnny Hendricks ended up being a world champion. Chaz Skelly had a good, decent little run, still fights in the UFC. They had a good eye. He comes from that program and then ends up ends up at Team Alpha Male, where they're asking him to help them with their wrestling. Like wrestling is what the guy does. Now, when you see him take on a one-handed Nick Newell, it's like, okay, well, it's gonna happen. But his win over Troy Lampson. Troy Lampson wrestled collegiately at, uh, collegiately at Michigan State University, right? So he's wrestled other wrestlers, and he just takes them down. Now you get the Hackross fight. Well, pretty tough debut to go out there and take on Nazareth Hackross. But in the first round, I thought the guy looked pretty good. He lost all three rounds on all three scorecards, but he gets a takedown. Uh, he, he's a one of only two guys, him and Marcin Helder, the only guy that actually take down Nazareth Hackross. It's a decent look for him, right? If he can continue that, he's going to have some success. And giving him Luis Pena, a guy that he should be able to take down, perfect. Once he gets these takedowns, don't get caught in a foolish little submission, but he's got he's to go with the Bartos-Fabinski approach. The takedowns yeah. should be there. It's whether or not you're able to stay out of danger and whether or not you've got three-round cardio. In the Newell fight, 
three-round cardio, no problem. The Lampson fight, three-round cardio. That's what we need here is take down Luis Pena, grind this guy. He got tired against Kama Worthy and then got submitted by him. Bad look, bad look. His striking also looked really off in that fight, and he was super hesitant for the for the most part. So Munoz could you know do one of these alpha males, overhand right into the clinch, up against the cage, peel you to the ground. And so I always say, last point, the last thing I do want to mention is we're in the small cage, right? We're in Vegas. It's the apex. Luis Pena is not going to have as much space to work with on the outside. Munoz should be able to go out there, clinch him up, take him to the ground. When it first opened and it was slight underdog Munoz, I was like, perfect. Going to get a dog play out of this. I like Munoz. Seeing that there's a, I wouldn't say sizable, but an okay amount of money is rolling in on Pena and it's moving the line. I'm not sure why that is. Maybe it's because Pena just recently trained with Jake Paul. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I am going to stick with Munoz here. Yeah, I definitely like the, the Munoz look here. Hopefully, he can get that cardio for three rounds. And obviously, that that combo worthy loss is not looking that good, considering that combo worthy has been deaded twice since that uh, since that win over Luis Pena. So uh, yeah, definitely not looking too good for Pena coming into this fight. But public seems to like him, which was why the line is moving the way that it is. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. This one shouldn't be too long to, to break down. We got Abdul Razak Al-Hassan making his 185-pound debut in the UFC, uh, going up a weight class. I believe his last two fights, which he ultimately ended up losing, he did miss weight, so I'm sure the UFC kind of nudged him in the direction of 185 if he wanted to continue fighting under the under the promotion, so he abided, and luckily for him, he gets Jacob Malkoon. Now, first and foremost, hats off to Jacob Malkoon for taking a fight like this especially after getting smoked by a similar guy in phil hawes last time around relatively quickly now he, it seems like he almost wants to go out there and try to exercise his demons to be like look i can fight this type of fighter and come out with a with a win but uh, i'm not sure how successful he's going to be here i i'm fully expecting uh al hassan to go in there classic al hassan moment just crash forward land big shots put out malkoon uh i was one of those schlubs that went out there and backed malkoon in that debut against phil oz and i'm not i'm not you know i'm not super embarrassed to admit it but uh yeah i, I got proven wrong that time on the on the regional scene his chin seemed like it was okay but then again he was only four and oh coming into the ufc fighting guys that were definitely not the level of phil Hawes, definitely not the level of abdul razak al hassan so uh definitely a mistake on my end uh, back in october when he made his debut but here, I, I'm not making that mistake twice. I think that Razak goes out there, buzzsaws to this guy, finishes him within the first two and a half minutes. Um, this is a tough fight to see how comfortable uh, Razak will truly be at 185 pounds, right? The, the level of competition is very low here. He should be able to just crash forward and, and get the finish. Uh, his takedown defense should hold up, considering that's probably the only advantage that uh, Malkun would have is if this fight does hit the ground. But we've seen him you know, have decent takedown defense uh, against guys in the past. Uh, so I think that Razak will just kind of crash forward, close the distance re really quickly, and uh, get him out of here. So I I'm liking Razak first round, uh, plus 140, not too bad. I'm not sure why anybody would even consider, you know, betting Al Hassan straight here or even parlaying him rather than taking the under one and a half or even just him to win in round one or him by KO at minus 160. Like that—that's on his only path to victory. He never wins decisions. So if this fight does hit the second round, yeah, I would be sweating if I have a, a fucking Al Hassan in a parlay because his, his activity. His power, everything drops off significantly after that first round, which is why he's always, you know, more than often than not, most of his losses are coming the later the fights goes, other than, other than you know, Chaos Williams deading him the way that he did last time out. So, uh, yeah, I like Al Hassan here. Dickie buzzsaws through. Malkoon gets the finish. Round one, plus 140. I'll take a little bit of a sprinkle on that. But, yeah, I like Al Hassan. How are you seeing this one? 
Okay, so I feel like somebody seriously lied to me about this Jacob Malkoon character, right? Why is that? So, okay, okay. So, so what did we know about him when he made his debut, right? What was his whole little narrative? Was that he was Robert Whitaker's BJJ coach, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay, that that's his little claim to fame, right? But then looking at it, there, things didn't really add up to me, right? So, so first of all, he's only twenty five years old, right? Who's BJJ coach is 25 years old? What, what <laughs> world-class fighter who fights, is the, he's the champion in the UFC, is fucking BJJ coach is 25 years old. Yeah. I've never been to, a, like, the gyms that I've trained my jiu-jitsu at, it's like, you know, grisly 40-year-old men who have, like, devoted themselves to this. So, so that in itself was a little bit strange. Then the second thing is, for a guy who's Robert Whitaker's BJJ coach, he shows zero submission victories. He never submitted a guy. He was actually 2-0 as an amateur and also never even submitted an amateur opponent. Now, wouldn't you know it, he's 3-0 as a pro boxer. So whose 25-year-old BJJ coach is boxing professionally? None of that fucking it, – it doesn't make sense. Yeah. No submission wins, yet he's the, the coach, young. So when you – pro boxer. And so BoxRack says he's six foot one. And Sure Dog says he's six foot one. Lo and behold, he shows up to weigh-ins and is five foot nine. Like, <laughs> like what, what is going on here? And then he gets sparked in 18 seconds. Now it's Phil Haas. Phil Haas, he touches you. You're in a world of shit. Phil Haas also has about three, maybe three and a half minutes worth of cardio. And then he's just going to cling on to you. Well, you know, Razak Al-Hassan's in the same boat. He's got copious amount of power but he doesn't seem to translate into rounds two and three he touches you you're in a lot of problems and i think that is what he's going to do here i think he's going to go in there hit malkoon when he does he should be able to put him out again malkoon is three and is a pro boxer so you think he's got decent striking but seeing haas go out there it's mma gloves it's a different game he's way more athletic he beats him to the punch and as soon as he hits him he stiffens him up when you look at al hassan al hassan doesn't have a problem letting his hands go i mean quite literally his run doesn't look too bad when you consider he starts off, he's just like he's a man on fire, right? Knocks out Charlie Ward in 53 seconds. The Amari Akhmadov fight, Akhmadov turned out to be a top 15, fringe top 10 guy, you know, was a competitive fight against Chris Weidman of all people, like is a big, strong, brute, combat sambo world champion. So we give him a kind of a pass on that fight, and it's a split decision. He didn't quit. He fought to the end. He's still trying in the third round. But then Saba Hamasi, it's a shit show of a first fight. And they both got dropped, really. He knocks out Hamasi, who you'll see tomorrow night against Paul Daly. Then they run it back, and he blows him out of the water the second time. Then he gets Nico Price. This is a legit fight. He touches him up 43 seconds. He topples over. Now his problems start in the Manu Laziz fight. But keep in mind, he comes in at, what, 174 pounds for that fight? Yeah, so he missed. misses weight by four pounds, by three pounds, technically, right? But in the first round, he nails Manu Laziz, buddy. He's putting it on him. The difference there is Laziz can take the damage. And once Laziz survives that first round, he's able to turn the tides. And again, the fight does go the distance. And then in his last fight, cardio is not an issue. He misses weight again, right? This is two consecutive back-to-back -back misses, and he gets sparked by Chaos Williams. Turns out, you know, appropriately named Chaos Williams touches yeah. you, and you're in a world of problem. He also got really, really, really fast hands, and it's the punch you don't see coming, and Razak did not see that one coming. Is he stiffened up bad? Yeah, it's a, it's a dirty knockout. Is this a quick turnaround considering how bad that knockout was? Potentially. But moving up to 185, that should be where he, sh he should be at. Him taking on a legitimate middleweight would be a problem. be a big problem. I'm looking to fade this guy going forward. Him against Malkoon, I mean, what's there to fade? I mean, 
he should be able to go out there and get that knockout within round and a half. Now, coincidentally, Razak Al-Hassan by knockout is minus 135. The under one and a half, also minus 135. I think I would lean to prefer the Al-Hassan by knockout in case we get one of these second or third round finishes. But he doesn't really finish guys in, outside of the first round. So if you are going to bet him, you might as well take that one and a half. And if for whatever reason Malcoon does get him to the ground and finish him, it would still cover you on the under one and a half. But, you know, they call him Judo Thunder for a reason. He is a high-level Judo black belt. The problem is once he's tired, he don't know judo anymore. He forgets all of his techniques. He just fatigue makes a coward out of all of us. And I'm not saying he's a coward. He fights all the way to the end, like I'm saying. But his technique definitely goes out the window. If Malcoon's going to win this fight, it's, it's going to have to be extending him into those deeper waters. So I'm going to pre-bet Al Hassan. Al Hassan by knockout minus 135. I'm also having a look at this on a live betting side. If this fight gets in the second round, I might be inclined to get my money out and hedging out and going Malcoon because if Malcoon doesn't get deaded in the first. He'll have his opportunities to just start wearing on Al Hassan later. But middleweight should be a better fit for him in that he's taking on a guy that's five foot nine, also not really a middleweight himself. So he should have a little more success. So a minus one thirty five Al Hassan knockout. I like it. I like it. I like it. Hopefully it doesn't end up getting into that second round for Al Hassan's sake because it just never works out historically for him. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got some heavyweights going at it. We got Andre Arlovsky taking on Chase Sherman. And if I'm not mistaken, Chase, yeah, Chase was actually supposed to, supposed to fight my boy, Parker Porter. Parker Porter, unfortunately, <laughs> has to pull out and steps on Jarlowski, who's just keeping busy during this COVID era. If I'm not mistaken, this is actually his fourth fight in the COVID era. Uh, the man's racking it up. If I'm not mistaken, he's getting six figures just on that show purse. So I'm sure he's more than happy to take fights on short Norris, especially against guys like Chase Sherman here. Now, the funny thing is Chase Sherman seems to be like the butt of the joke in the MMA betting community, right? Nobody seems to like the guy. I just don't completely understand it. Um, but the line is moving very heavily towards Chase Sherman here. You got Andre Arlovsky opening up at minus 185. He's down to minus 120 now. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see Sherman go off as the favorite when the bell actually rings for the first round here. And I kind of understand it, right? I, I'm not, I'm a, I'm a fan of Chase Sherman 2.0, which is calf kick Chase Sherman because he's just going out there. And ever since he got caught for about after his loss to Augusto Sakai, goes out there and you know rolls over guys on on island fights that probably aren't up to snuff. But he's just attacking them with that calf kick and then letting his hands go afterwards, and then most often than not getting that knockout victory. Now, how much though? did the sauce help him how much did that juice help him that he got popped for after he knocked out ike villanueva and had to take a little bit of a hiatus that that's the question mark here right did he did it really affect him so much on the the, the regional scene and wh whatever he was on was that affecting him and his performances and allowing him to get those types of performances off uh which is why he has looked so good since the ufc initially cut him I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here, right? You're taking the fight against Ike Villanueva on short notice. You don't have the time to get whatever the fuck you're on out of your system. So obviously, yeah, you're going to pop if you're taking a if you're taking a USADA test right before that fight. But I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Like, how much sauce do you truly need in your veins to go out there and implement a calf kick heavy game? Like, it's it seems like something that he can easily uh, implement. And if he's able to do that here against Andre Lovsky, who's, you know, when Andre Lovsky is at his best, he's moving around a lot. He's getting combinations off. He doesn't have any crazy knockout power in his punches. Not to mention the last time he knocked somebody out was UFC 187 against Travis Brown years ago. Great so, yeah, fight. He, yeah, amazing fight. Probably yeah. one of the fights that I recommend to everybody to watch. If you did not see that, four and a half minutes of fight of the night material, guys. I'm telling you, amazing fight. <laughs> Even seeing Joe Rogan's reaction in the background as that fight was going on was just having me lose it. But get back to this fight here. I think Chase Sherman could go out there and beat up that front leg of uh, of um, 
Andrei Arlovsky and, and really start to go to work with his hands. Now, people want to go back and talk about the Tanner Bozer fight, right? That's Tanner Bozer's approach. But Tanner Bozer is like a, a, a leg kicker. He's not a calf kicker, per se. He's more of a leg kicker. He targets the leg, the thigh, the, the knee area, and he just goes to work there. Whereas Chase Sherman is like digging right into the calves. He's trying to immobilize you. He's trying to make sure that you're not able to like, you know, get that that bouncy moving game off which is why Andre Lovsky has been so beneficial or or has benefited him so much in his past several years which is why he's getting wins over guys like Philippe Lins and Tanner Bozer because he's giving you the output he's giving you the movement and he's nullifying the amount of damage that's coming back his way so I think that Chase 2.0 can go out here as long as the the not being on the sauce anymore doesn't uh, heavily affect him here. I think he can implement that calf kick and then get his hands going after that. And I think he could possibly knock out uh, Andre Arlovsky in this spot if he's able to kind of just you know, stall Andre Arlovsky and not allow him to move as much. So I'm uh, Sherman by KO plus 255, not too bad of a spot. Under 2.5 plus 135, not a bad spot either in my opinion. Like I've always been a huge performer of – uh, Andre Arlovsky overs more more often than not, especially if he's not fighting guys that are Jairzinho Rosenstrike or Francis Ngannou. Uh, more often than not, his fights are going to a judge's scorecards. But just the way that Sherman has been fighting as of late, I feel like he's looking for that kill. And that it all starts with the with chopping the lead leg down of his opponents and then getting his hands going after that. So I'll go Sherman KO here. Plus, like I said, plus two plus 255 not too bad of a line if you want to talk about he needs at least one round to implement it and then let it go in that second round chase sherman in round two it's plus 675 so alex sherman here might be the favorite by fight time how are you seeing this one yeah i mean it's a dirty fight all around first of all here's something i don't understand so why was chase sherman why didn't he get a no contest out of the ike fight that it, that it, scratched my head too yeah yeah i i was weird i weirded it out by that too yeah yeah, it's in competition, right? He wins. He tests in competition, and then it's like, oh, you. It should be a no contest, and yet no one ever really like looked into it. Here's here's my question about that, right? Uh, Chase Sherman looked way better since coming back to the UFC, no doubt about it. He had the one fight against Ike Villanueva, sure, but even when he was BKFC bare knuckle boxing dudes, it's like physically he looks in a lot better shape. He had left Alan Belcher's gym in Mississippi and went over to Jackson Winklejohn in New Mexico. It looked like he was really starting to come into his own. He's a former collegiate football player, so we know he's a good athlete. He's also six foot four, big guy for the division, and he's got great output. He doesn't move his head. He's got a willingness to get hit. He does kind of make a lot of, uh, you know, small, I guess, big mistakes. But going to Wink, getting better, 31, good athlete, finally tying it all together, it did, it did feel good. He gets popped for this an astralazone though right and so i had to look it up and it's used as a as as a medication to treat breast cancer right but beyond that it's used to uh to to as like a masking agent and also to treat gyno uh gyno tits like bitch tits essentially <laughs> so he's using it because he's cycling a bunch of shit and this is one of the things that he's using to cycle when he's not when, like on his off cycle gets caught on his off cycle because of the Villanueva fight with short notice. That's a problem. But now he's coming into this Arlovsky fight absolutely clean. Is he going to go throw 100-plus significant strikes? Is he going to have three-round cardio? Is he going to keep, you know, in Arlovsky's face and pressure him the entire time? Because outside of that, Arlovsky's fought way better level of competition. Again, he is 42 years old, but he doesn't really seem to be slowing down that much. And the Tom Aspinall fight, man, he's coming on. He's coming on hard. And then he gives up a no-hooks rear naked choke. Yeah. Thank God. Uh, but it's like, man, he was starting to give me a sweat there. Like, Arlovsky is a gatekeeper, journeyman gatekeeper, but he's there for a reason. And a lot of the time you get a late notice replacement, it's usually like a step down. 
going from fighting Parker Porter to fighting Andre Orlovsky, that's completely different. Like, this is a, a massive change of opponent. Parker Porter, very short, stocky, legs like massive tree trunks, is going to try to take you down, likely. Whereas Andre Orlovsky is not, I mean, might try to take you down, but I, I would assume the game plan is turn this into a sparring session, stay to the outside, you know, land a couple, try to land the more eye-catching shots, but relatively, they're always close rounds. They're sparring-type rounds. And Orlovsky just does a little bit more than his opponent. But Tanner Bozer fights a great example. He gets outstruck like 68 to 32 and yet wins because it's like, eh, well, it's Andre Orlovsky, you know, veteran of the sport. I'll give him the nod in these close rounds. So Sherman's got to go out there. He's got to put a performance of a lifetime together. What he did against Ike, it looked like he's definitely coming the right way. But him off the gear, like, I don't know. I don't know that I, I am going to bet him. I, I do think that it was a live underdog spot. Andre Orlovsky has not been the favorite in four years, 11 straight fights. He's been the underdog. It's for a reason, you know, like maybe Chase Sherman's live in that spot, but the money's got it as an even, as a pretty even fight. And, and I don't know, I just get in this feeling that it's like heavyweights be heavyweights. And I don't want a ton of exposure on this one, but for the sake of having to make an official pick and obviously put a prop on this one. Um, what I was looking at was uh, Sherman and Arlovsky go the distance at minus 135 and a Sherman by decision at plus 350. So again, Sherman's got to use those light kicks. He's got to stall them. He's got to sort of, to basically take this to 15 minutes and don't, don't, don't put too much on him, but off the juice, if he's not as sharp as he was, if he's not, doesn't have quite that same zip, that same output, that same cardio, hopefully we get a decision. Arlovsky, you already mentioned it on his side of things. If he's going to win. It's going to be a decision. But when we talk about Arlovsky having a suspect chin, again, you do have to look at level of opposition and he's got a suspect chin when he takes on Yerazino Rosenstruck or Francis Ngannou or Alistair Overeem or Stipe Miocic, but it's like, come on, come on. Those guys make everybody look chinny because it's absolute world-class level. Meanwhile, Chase Sherman got boxed up by Joey Beltron yeah. uh, for 10 grand. Like, is that uh, two fights ago? Is that, is that a good look? Is that, is that high-level shit? No, not really. So, you know, it, to me, I, I started off Sherman all week, and again, I just made official, official pick Sherman, but this is one of those ones that, Come, I tweet out my parlays. Like you might see Arlovsky on the PFP <laughs> or something. Like it'll be really low down there. But I'm not. A, I'm not above a switch. Yeah, I can absolutely see that approach here. And I'm interested to see actually if Sherman ends up going off as the favorite come fight time because it seems like that's how everything is trending at, trending at this point in time. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got the co-main event. We got Jakar Close versus Jeremy Stevens. Jeremy Stevens going back up. 255 pounds uh, after a tumultuous run that he's had over his last five fights. But can you really blame him with the level of competition? And he's probably made a solid account of himself, especially later in that Yair uh, Rodriguez fight. But, you know, getting crippled with a body shot by Jose Aldo, um, eating a, an elbow from hell by Calvin Cater last time around. And then even that that ground and power that he had to uh, endure was just absolutely insane. And the funny part about it all he never went out in any of those fights. This guy is durable as fuck. I believe the last time before Jose Aldo, he had been finished by by strikes was Yves Jobuin, uh or or Eve Edwards, if I'm not mistaken, actually back in like 2011, 2012. So yeah, I still think that the durability is there for uh, Jeremy Stevens, especially against here uh, in this fight against Ricard Close, who's not really a, a knockout artist, right? The guy's a decisionator pretty much, right? Outside of that one crazy fight he had against Benio Darius, the guy more often than not goes 15 minutes, uh, wh whether he's winning or losing. You have to really go back to early in his career to find him winning fights by knockout. So I'd be very surprised if he gets into this fight and actually beats Jeremy Stevens by knockout. 
Now, my, my concern or my my worry here is, is Dracar Close going to look to go to wrestling? Because uh, is he really going to think that he's going to go out there and outstrike Jeremy Stevens over 15 minutes? I think that if he decides to trade in the pocket with Stevens, uh, you know, that's going to be the biggest mistake that he could possibly make. Both guys are heavy leg kickers as well. Obviously, the MMA lab has uh, really refined their leg kicking strategy, and Jeremy Stevens has always been doing his leg kicking game, uh, and, and that's worked out for him more often than not in uh, you know uh, fights prior to that that five fight stretch that he's currently on. Uh, remember, he was on that three fight winning streak, and everybody's like, "Oh shit, Jeremy Stevens finally!" You know, years after making his UFC debut, is finally starting to put it together and got got a solid run going, and then he runs into Jose Aldo as a slight favorite as well too. If you guys remember that, the the, the bookies had him around minus one thirty going into that fight against Jose Aldo because everybody thought Aldo, Aldo was like done by that point in time. But uh, th this fight seems to me that it's going to play out on the feet. And I got to I gotta lean Jeremy Stevens here. I think that he's going to get the better shots off, the more impactful shots. He has great combinations. Again, he has great leg kicks as well. Very well trained, obviously, out of Alliance MMA. And Jakar Close, you know, doesn't really do anything that really pops off the page to me. You know, outside of rocking Benio Darius the way that he did and then ultimately getting finished like a minute later, what is there really to like from Jakar Close's game? He has decent combinations, decent leg kicks, but I feel like Jeremy Stevens hasn't covered pretty much everywhere in this fight. So I, I like Jeremy. I'm not sure if Jeremy will knock him out. Uh, you know, Close has taken over, I believe, 14 months now to recover from that Benio Darius knockout, which was just absolutely insane the way he was falling down uh, against the cage in that fight. But uh, Stevens here, you know, if you want to go over one and a half minus 280, I think it does at least go over one and a half. I get questionable the later this fight goes, right? Jeremy Stevens still has some decent power in his hands, in my opinion. And if Close does have any lingering effects of the knockout from Benio Darius, Jeremy Stevens is not the guy you want to be getting hit by. So Stevens by KO plus 320, not too bad. But even Stevens uh, by decision plus 245, not a bad spot. So ultimately, I'll go with Stevens by decision plus 245, landing the more impactful and better spots or shots i should say uh so yeah I, i'm going a little heathen how are you seeing this one i'm gonna go with dracker close and i don't feel great about it because again yeah you got the the, the consummate professional the consummate veteran and jeremy stevens against dracker close yeah it's dracker close but realistically speaking i mean they're only a year apart right jeremy stevens is 34 years old dracker close is 33 years old dracker close has had 14 pro fights Jeremy Stevens has 18 pro losses. Yeah, no. He's got he's most. got more losses than this guy's got fights. Yeah, I think he's he has got, the most losses in UFC history. Yeah, I mean Andre Olovsky's <laughs> right up there with him, right? Oh, but uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's just like that. That's Andre Olovsky's at least 42 years old. He's been fighting <laughs> in the UFC since like 2001, right? Yeah. So it's like you can you can give the guy a, a pass, uh, but ultimately it's like yeah, the three guys in the conversations like Alexei Olenek, Andre Olovsky, and Jeremy Stevens. The, these are the guys with the big losses. Stevens has been around. I mean, uh, just look if you look at his his initial run, right? Loses to Dean Thomas, long gone retired. Spencer Fisher now has brain damage, sadly <sighs> enough. Joe Lozon retired. Melvin Gallard, what the fuck? No, <laughs> Melvin Gallard, right? Anthony Pettis no longer with the company. Donald Cerrone on his last leg. Eves Edwards has been retired for you know a, a, a very long time. Kind of dates myself actually. I cashed that Eves Edwards ticket as the underdog way back when. And what I want to bring back to that fight is that was the last time he fought at 155 pounds. Then he drops down to 145, and that's where you see Jeremy Stevens attain you know the best wins. Again, his losses are always the best guys: Cub Swanson, Charles Oliveira, Max Holloway, Frank Yeager, Hanato Marcano. Aldo, Magomed Sharapov, Yair Rodriguez, Calvin Cater. 
holy fuck, man. He is literally the UFC owes this guy a pension program for sure. It's like he's fought all of the best guys that the sport's ever seen. He's never complained. He's always brought the fight to them. He's always done his absolute damage to win the fight. But there's no denying Jeremy Stevens. Who to fuck that guy? He's the hardest hitting 45 in the division. You lay them out. I put them down. Right? That's 45, Holmes. This is 55. He hasn't fought at 155 pounds in like eight years. And the last time he fought at 155, he was on a three-fight losing streak. He had lost to Eves Edwards, but he had also lost to Anthony Pettis and Donald Cerrone. It wasn't working out for him. So he drops down to 45, and all of a sudden he's able to track these guys. All of a sudden he's able to hit these guys. All of a sudden he's able to bust them up. So now at 34 years old, now not wanting to cut the weight anymore, coming up to 155 pounds, yeah, he's still got that power. Yeah, he's still got a nasty calf kick. I just don't – I think he's. It, it won't be as much as it was at featherweight. So when I think about the dynamic of Jeremy Stevens catching Jakar close, it's like, again, I, I don't know that he's going to have as much power. I don't know what's going to translate through. Like, long gone are the days where he's knocking out Rafael Dos Anjos. Dude's going to yeah. win over Dos Anjos, by the way. Like, Crazy. You know, Jeremy Stevens has been there, done that. But at some point, you're going to start to to slow down. And he's fighting the best guys, but he is on a four-fight losing streak. He's winless in his last five. We talked about Sam Alvey last weekend. There's another case of Alvey was winless in his last five on a four-fight losing streak and uh, had changed weight class, looking for something else. Looking for that different weight class isn't always the answer. And when you're taking on the young up-and-comer, I'm not going to call Jakar close young because just a year off, but he is the up-and-comer, right? He's got way less mileage on his record. So on one hand, we got, I believe, a fading version of Jeremy Stevens. Still dangerous, still tons of back class, still like one badass dude. And certainly, I think, good for three rounds because Dracar Close ain't finishing nothing if he does win. So we know what we're getting out of Steven. My, my argument with Dracar Close is people want to talk about the fact that he got deaded by Benil Darius. Man, he's this close to knocking out Benil Darius. And so imagine if he didn't get it overzealous. Imagine he didn't chase the kill. Imagine he takes his time and knocks out Benil Darius. He's in like a fight or two away from title contention. He's in the talks of top 10 of the division. He'd, he'd be on a, on a solid four-fight winning streak over with wins over Venata, Bobby Green, Christmas Jones. Those are all, they're all decent wins. Stevens is fighting the best guys on the planet. This guy's yeah. fighting okay-level guys, but at least he's fighting okay-level guys that are his size, right? So how do I see him matching up with Jeremy Stevens, right? So if Stevens has still got that power, he's got the leg-kicking game, he's got the striking. Close seems to have a little more, bit more output. Close also seems to have a better clinch game. In the smaller cage, hopefully he's able to track him down, strike his way into the clinch, get him up against the cage, and just try to drag on him and tire him a little bit. Again, this is not a spot that I'm super confident. It really isn't. But I feel like I would say my favorite spot is the fight to go the distance, minus 130. If close wins, dude, quite literally all of his wins are... You can say he knocked out guys in the regional scene. Yeah. I would counter with he took Devin Powell to a 15 minutes. <laughs> so he's not finishing shit. You yeah. could argue he hurt Benil Dariush. I could argue everybody hurts Benil Dariush. Yeah. So I, I, close is not a finisher. I don't think he's putting away Jeremy Stevens. Flip side to that, Jeremy's the knockout guy. The submission's not on the table for either guy. Can Jeremy go out there and line? Does he have one more left in the tank? Is he going to go out there and not, knock out Jakar Close? Potentially, but I, I'm going to chalk up Close's loss to Benil as an elite-level fighter, a natural 55. Benil ain't making 45 anytime no. soon, let me tell you that, bud. Yeah. Uh, losing to him, it's, it's not the end of the world. It's world-class opposition. Jeremy can tell you the same thing. When you fight world-class opposition, shit happens. Drakkar was looking good in that fight till he got caught. He's been off 13 months since then. 
Uh, he did pull out of his last fight against Luis Pena due to his corner man having COVID. So he's not banged up. He's taking the time to, to clear out his head. And I'm hoping he's just able to stay to the outside, intercept him, play counter puncher, which he prefers to do. Let Jeremy come in and, and matador him, hopefully en route to a, a three-round decision. So the play that I like this fight goes the distance because it's going to cover it either side. If Jeremy does win this fight, hopefully doesn't knock him out, goes the de decision, we'll hit that minus 130. But then close, decision machine, plus 200 to win a decision. I mean, that's certainly worth a look if you are backing close. Yeah. If you're backing Stevens, yeah, yeah, fuck it. Don't go with that. But if you are taking close, do you do you think Jakar Close is finishing Stevens? Not really feeling that. And that two to one, I mean, that's definitely a far better price than the money line. So give it that to me. Yeah, I'm right there with you. This one is a, one of the tougher ones to call, which is why the line is as close as it is. So I'm, you know, no pun intended again, but I'm really looking forward to seeing how this one plays out and how uh, Stevens actually looks going back to 155 pounds. All right, that brings us to our main event here. We got a big one coming up, but I do want to remind you guys two quick things right off the bat. Make sure you guys hit that like. We're at 210 live viewers damn good old days like i said and uh friday nights again it used to be the home on odds final way in show we used to do 9 p.m eastern on fridays tomorrow nights we have a little bit of an odds reunion it's going to be me clint from Die Hard mma podcast bleed mma as well as mma prediction guru 9 p.m eastern the ultimate weigh-in show on this channel right here we're going to be breaking down the cards for you guys uh with the weigh-ins in mind again 9 p.m eastern tomorrow me clint uh mma prediction grew and bleed so i hope to see you guys there cody will eventually make an appearance on that show i'm look, really looking forward to uh to locking him down for that but tomorrow night again a little bit of an odds reunion so hopefully you guys can make it out for that all right let's get into the main card or the the main event here we got robert whitaker and galvin gaston like i said at the top of the show these guys were originally scheduled to fight way back in february 2019 at ufc 234 robert whitaker pulls out the morning of the fight that's where you get that famous picture of Kelvin Gaslam sitting ringside with the with the belt. I actually, I think that was Triple C's belt as uh, Henry Suhuda was in Australia that weekend as well. Uh, we ended up getting Israel Adesanya versus Anderson Silva in a three-round main event that night. Um, yeah, you know, very unfortunate for uh, Robert Whitaker to have to pull out of that fight, especially in his home country at the time. Uh but they both had a little bit of a, a different uh, future after that, right? You get uh, Kelvin Gaston that goes out there and, and challenges Israel Adesanya for that interim strap. He ends up coming short in that, coming up short in that fight. Probably it was 2-2 going into that fifth round. So a competitive fight, fight of the year candidate, albeit uh, he loses that fight. Then he loses the Jack Hermanson fight where he's just not able to get his game going. Uh, also loses against Darren Till, uh, you know, not able to make up for that, that height disadvantage that he was having in that fight and then most recently he goes out there and beats ian heinish over 15 minutes on the flip side you got robert whitaker who loses his title to israel adesanya but since has put together two solid wins now over darren till and jared cannonier yes jared cannonier the one that israel adesanya was calling out after he pummeled paulo costa back in october he's like if jared cannonier takes care of his business against whitaker he's next up for the title shot unfortunately Cannonier falls short. Whitaker gets another win. And if he continues to rack up wins, it's going to be hard to, you know, deny him another title shot, right? 
as decisive as that first fight was, if Whitaker keeps turning back these contenders, you got to give him a, a title shot eventually. Now, beating a guy like Kelvin Gaston, should that warrant a title shot? I'm not 100% sure, right? I wish we could have got that Paulo Costa fight, which was originally scheduled for this weekend, as that would have been a much better claim to a title shot for Whitaker if he was able to get past Costa. But now we got now we got Gaslam. So a part of me is a little bit happy that we still get to see this fight, even though you know it, it was supposed to take place uh, over two years ago. But stylistically, the way these guys match up, the one thing you always have to worry about with Robert Whitaker is that chin, right? Is it going to survive? Like the only guy to put him out as of late was Israel Adesanya. But in every single fight, it seems like he's on wobbly legs at one point or another. The Jared Cannonier fight, less than a minute left, he gets rocked in that fight, but it has the wherewithal to uh, keep it together, to clinch up against Jared Cannonier and take the power off of his shots. Um, even in the Darren Till fight, he gets hurt, I believe, in the first round there, but has great awareness, gets back into the fight, and, and wins that fight on, on the judges' scorecards through five rounds. And I like his style, right? Like, he, he has a crotty-ish type of style where he's, like, bouncing on the outside, and then he, whenever he closes distance, he does a good job of getting his uh, head off the center line and then coming with a, with a one, two, three punch combination. And then even that combination that he landed to finish Jacare Souza, the combination that he landed to uh, hurt Jared Cannonier in that fight, too. Uh, I believe it's, like, a lead hook followed by... Uh, a head kick on the opposite side like it, it catches a lot of guys and it could definitely catch Kelvin Gaslam here the problem is you can't put away Kelvin Gaslam with, with with punches the guy has insane durability just watch that Israel Adesanya fight and you guys will know what I'm talking about speaking of the Israel Adesanya fight though I think people put too much stock in that fight for Kelvin Gaslam which is why he continues to be you know he always has a chance because look what he did to Israel Adesanya. He had such a close fight with him, the closest fight anybody's had with Adesanya up until that uh, Jan Blachowicz fight from, from a couple months ago. But I still think that that's that's teetering too much on people's heads here. I think that this is a solid fight for Robert Whitaker to go out there, win a five-round decision. I don't think he knocks out Calvin Gaslam. I don't think he submits Gaslam. I think Gaslam, if if he's smart, the approach to take here would probably be to initiate the grappling. Let's try to get this fight to the ground. He has great scrambles. He has great uh, jujitsu, right? Like I brought it up the last time Gaslam fought. His finish over Brian Melancon way back in the day was fucking sick. Just, just with his back take and his ability to just flow so effortlessly on the ground and we still see it we saw it in the ian heinish fight he did, he flows very well in grappling sequences so i'd be interested to see if that's a that's an approach that he decides to take here but otherwise like i think the only thing that you can really back uh calvin gaston with here is is his ko prop right you're getting uh gaston by ko at plus 610 which is a very juicy line considering how shaky robert whitaker's chin has been as of late but i think that this is going to look like a quintessential robert whitaker five round decision fight where he's just plotting on the outside and then crashes forward gets his shots off the more impactful shots off and then winning uh, a decision here so you get plus 150 for robert whitaker to win this fight via decision plus 150 i like that that that's where i'm going to be going with here i think this fight gets stretched out i think we see them be very cautious but we'll see whitaker get the better of the striking is changes minus 260 is a little bit too wide for me as a, as a money line uh, especially considering the, the the possible durability issues that we could see from uh whitaker here but the last time we saw calvin gaston actually put anybody's lights out was michael bisbing after he took that short notice fight after getting quickly knocked out or sorry rocked and then submitted by the canadian goat george st pierre but that was november of 2017 that's the last time he's finished somebody with punches so Maybe the zest of his shots are starting to get off of his punches, but we don't know. Ultimately, I'm going Whitaker. Decision plus 150. That's what I'd like. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, I never thought Kelvin was a very big power puncher. He's got very fast hands for the division because 
He's from a division below. He's a natural yeah. welterweight. If he could make welterweight, he'd be a real threat down there. But him being up at 185 pounds, he's going to obviously have a speed advantage. It's that they're like, they give him Vitor Belfort, legendary reputation. But the version that Kelvin gets, and he knocks yeah. him out. You know, he, he gets Michael Bisbig, legendary reputation. But, you know, the version that Kelvin gets, the, the, the Jacare Souza fight, which was really close and competitive, by the way. Yeah. It's like, he he gets these guys at the tail end of their careers, right? So he's able to hit them. He's able to hurt them. Even Tim Kennedy, he loses the first two rounds. He rallied back down two in the third, knocks out Tim Kennedy. Kennedy was, I think, 37 at the time, and then retired immediately after the fight. So, yeah, he's got knockouts. Yeah, he showed his highlight reel looks good, but against a lot of, like, aged veterans of the sport. Now, he gets the Israel Adesanya fight, and I'll tell you what. I mean, talk about not rocking an old man. He head-kicked what a lot of people said was the middleweight GOAT, which is one of the best middleweight fighters they had seen, which striking on a different level. I mean, we got five foot nine Kelvin Gastelum, should be a welterweight, head kicking Israel Adesanya, you know, going out there and putting a barrage on him, going into that fifth round, probably 2-2, two -two, you know, certainly in it. Like, holy shit, man, that's legit. But he was changed that night, you know? Something happened to him in the fifth round, the, the four knockdowns probably, uh, and, and he hasn't been the same since. Like, he, the, the next fight is the Darren Till fight, very reluctant. Doesn't want to let his hands go. Doesn't want to engage with Darren Till. As a result, ends up losing decision. The Jack Hermanson fight. Does it, you have such a significant striking advantage over Jack <laughs> Hermanson? Why would you shoot the takedown? Makes no sense. But it was like he didn't want to play punchy kicky. He wanted to get a takedown. He gets him in with the heel hook. Now the Ian Heinish fight. Not he, he's not bothered by getting heel hooked. He just goes right back to the takedowns. Ends up scoring six of them and defeating Ian Heinish. The thing there is that ever since the Israel Adesanya fight, it does not appear that he actually wants to strike. And I think, again, he took some fucking shots in that fight. He took some shots in that round, that fifth round especially, that maybe it has changed him a little bit. And if it has changed him a little bit, it's going to be a prompt. Because taking down Robert Whitaker, good luck. I mean, he's come a long way since getting taken down by Brad Scott way back in the day. Like nowadays, I mean, he's a guy that qualified for the uh, – Australian uh, Commonwealth wrestling team. I mean, wrestling's much better. Takedown defense, much better. The only guys that have managed to take him down is Jacare Souza got him down once before he got head kicked and knocked him out. And Yoel Romero took him down in both of their fights, four times the first time, three times the second time, I believe. But again, it's like, that's Yoel Romero. You give him a pass there. His wrestling's very good. I don't think Kelvin Gastelum has success with a wrestling-based attack. He needs to go out there and he needs to strike. And what I mean by needs to go out there and strike he can't be throwing 30, 40 significant strikes like he's been doing. He needs to go out there and have an Israel Adesanya type performance where he marches forward, he crashes the pocket, he closes the distance, he lets his hands go, he throws in combinations. Because if there's one knock on Robert Whitaker, he too has been a changed man. Yoel Romero took his soul. And since then, he does appear to be a little bit chinny. But Darren Till is a hell of a power puncher. He's an excellent counter puncher as well. Again, low volume guy. But if he hits you, he's going to do a lot of damage. Getting dropped by him, it's going to happen. But he rallies back. He gets the win. Fair and square. Good fight. Shows that resilience. Shows that world-class back class on him. Perfect. Nice. And then the Jared Cannonier fight. I faded him. I went with the narrative of this guy's chin. I went with the narrative of, you know, Jared Cannonier's got crystals, dog. And, he, and he's saying these crystals are giving him powers. I believe it. You see the chest on that guy? You see the power <laughs> on this guy? If you're chinny and you're going to fight Jared Cannonier, you're in for a world of shit. 
But again, Whitaker is just very classy. He's a very good striker. He does have good ring IQ. He can play that outside game. And I think that that's the path to victory with Kelvin. Kelvin's a shorter guy. He needs to make this a scrap. He needs to make this a fight. He needs to make this ugly and hopefully catch Whitaker. But he's just shown no propensity to do that since the Izzy fight. So I'm going to chalk the Izzy fight up to an outlier performance. World title's on the line. You felt really good for that fight. And then since then, he's, he's being a lot more risk adverse. And if you're going to come out here and try to outpoint Whitaker, it should be a bit of a problem. Now, I don't know how heavy I want to get into this as far as like a money line side of things, but good for us. We're a prop-based show. And the prop that I really like is this over three and a half at minus 155. Now, keep this in consideration. The over three and a half is minus 155, right? The fight goes the distance is minus 135. It's, it's 20 points off on a seven and a half minute difference, man. I would definitely take the over three and a half more than I would take fight goes the distance just because if this is a three round fight, I think it goes three rounds all day. Again, Kelvin needs to be the one that has to be the aggressor and go and get the knockout. Whitaker is not likely to knock out Kelvin Gaslam because Gaslam is, I don't want to be the stereotypical guy that says Mexican heritage, but he lives up to it, man. He has yeah. got an excellent chin, good punch resistance. Even when Izzy's dropping him, he's getting back up. He's got good heart. The submission game's off the table. We need a knockout from either side. Who's the likely, more likely to get the knockout would be KG. But I'm favoring Robert Whitaker. I think he plays the distance game. I plays, think he plays the smart game. I think he plays the matador and the counterpunching game. Gets the job done. And so for that reason, I think that this is getting rounds in. If Whitaker is going to knock out Kelvin, it would have to be, a, a, I don't know, one hell of a shot. Or you beat this guy bad over the course of five. I don't see that being the, 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 the best path here. I think he's just going to outpoint him. If KG wins, he's got to make it a dirty fight. I don't think he's going to do it. So I think the over three and a half at minus 155 is a play that I really like. And then as far as making a straight up pick, I would take Robert Whitaker. Again, I would take Robert Whitaker by decision. And that's sitting at plus 150. So I like the over three and a half a lot more than I like that Whitaker by decision, just because, you know, anything could theoretically happen. But um, but yeah, this is this is a fun main event. This is this is world class fighting at the highest level. Two top five guys, a former world champion. Very exciting. Some of the bummer fights on the card, the lower level stuff, that's where the value is. This high level stuff, it's two guys with an incredible amount of skill. Uh, whoever shows up on the right day or that shows up in their best form on the right day can make it happen. So I am going to go Whitaker, Whitaker by decision. And the favorite prop on this fight is going to be that over three and a half. Over four and a half seems to be the more widely available total. Are you, would you say you're as confident in that as you are three and a half? Yeah, I mean, again, it's the difference of five minutes, but yeah. at least if depending on what your book is, the price isn't that much different. And so mm. I hate that just because anything could happen, right? Sure. Um, but a lot of these spots where you think someone, I don't know, uh, we, we've been banking a lot on these five round main events because of wrestling. Vittori's going to just lay and pray Holland yeah. on the ground very easily, and we're going to get wrapped, right? Brunson's going to hopefully take down Holland. And you see the repetitive <laughs> scene here is Holland. Yeah. But that's going to bank us five rounds. This is a striking battle. Yeah. This is 25 minutes of punchy kicky. It's a little yeah. bit different. We've Tippy. got very durable Kelvin Gaslam, not so durable Robert Whitaker. And yet here we are picking Robert Whitaker. Yeah. So that's that's an odd, that's a bit of an odd spot to me. But Whitaker ain't getting diced in the first round, man. Look what Yol did to him, and he came back from that. Till dropped him, and he came back from that. You, you, you got to kill him, or he is going to come back and keep fighting. And so for that reason, I love that three and a half. The four and a half, if you're going to take four and a half, just take fight goes the distance. It's a yeah. difference of two and a half minutes. And again, the price is not even all that much better. Mm -hmm. But just take fight goes the distance at that point.
Perfect, perfect. All right, let's get into our three breast props so we can start wrapping this show up. Uh, I'll kick things off as I always do. The first one that I got up for you guys is Tracy Cortez via decision minus 150. Got it. Got to do that one, right? That feels like the safest spot on the card for me, to be honest. Uh, is it the lock of the night play? I don't know. You guys try to figure that shit out. Uh, next up, we got Al-Hassan in round one, plus 140. If he wins, more often than not, it's in round one. If you're giving me a little bit of plus money, more than likely I'm going to be taking that. Uh, even though he's going up in weight here against uh, Jacob Malkoon, Jacob Malkoon seems like the perfect type of opponent for him to just dust in that first round, crash forward, blitz forward, get those big shots off and get his ass out of there and run around. So plus 140, not too bad of a line. I honestly thought it would be closer to the evens marked considering that Al Hassan, all of his victories have come in round one. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm fine with plus 140 for Al Hassan in round one. And then lastly, I got to take, that is absolutely wrong. I did not fix that uh, last one there, but I was going to take Zara Farron to win via decision. Uh, let me just pull up what that line is. I'll make that uh, change on the graphic here for you guys very shortly. Yeah, no too, but... problem. And I think that was the Arnold Allen one that you had briefly yeah. flashed there. And so I want to give you props on that. Bro, so close. you nailed that so 100%. Close. Yeah, you nailed that 100%. Because you, you sat here and you were like, Arnold Allen's going to line him up with the shot. He's got a yeah. good He's got a good overhand. He's got a good shot. And Sodik Yusef appears to be chinny. Sodik Yusef been knocked out one time by slam. I don't know if I would th say that he's chinny. I have seen him hurt, but it was like, that's what won the fight for Arnold Allen. He's losing the first round, and then yeah. he drops him. The yeah. second round's pretty competitive, and then he drops him. Like, Where's the killer instinct, Arnold? Where's the killer instinct? And and it would have been, <laughs> look at that price tag, baby, 865. Insane. Uh, bro, you're, you, you, your read was actually very close, very on. Uh, would have been another big one for you. But yeah. that's the thing when you – I know you like to hit these big props, and the thing is, do you hit them every week? They're not made to be hit every week. Yeah. When they do hit, they pay a tremendous amount. Exactly. So you were close. The read was right. If you make reads like that more often than not, you're 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 coming out in the green for sure, man. So again, hopefully uh, karma comes back around my way for the next one. But yeah, the last one that I do have for my top three is Zara Farn to win via decision plus one ninety five. I'll edit that uh, that for you guys real quick. But that's that is definitely the spot that I like the most uh, out of the top three here. So yeah, Cody, I'll get you to do the next one here to to start your spot off here. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going with uh, Hubbard and uh, Dakota Bush. Fight goes the distance, minus 155. Again, Austin Hubbard, he, we know he gives up those takedowns, but for the most part, it's like he's tough to put away. Now, you can argue Joe Selecki put him away. Man, that's Joe Selecki. Guy was out grappled by Davi Ramos and went the distance with Davi Ramos. Guy was in there with Marco Madsen, you know, an Olympic silver medalist, getting taken down multiple times, always works his way back up. Trends at elevation, great cardio, in a room with, with Dober and Gaethje every day, has a very good chin. He's got decision fighter written all over him. And with Dakota Bush, he, both of his pro losses by decision. If Bush wins, I think he's winning this fight over Austin Hubbard by decision. If Austin Hubbard wins, he's winning this fight over Dakota Bush by decision. If you don't want to make a lean on who you think is going to win this fight, you take this fight just to straight up go to that decision. Minus 155. Moving on to that, I'm going to give you another minus 155. Whitaker, <laughs> Kelvin, Gaslam over three and a half. Again, we just finished talking about it. I honestly do think that it's, Two guys that are world-class, they respect each other, right? You don't see high-level fights where it's like, I'm just going to bum-rush my opponent. There's a lot of respect. You need to go out there. You need to analyze. Sometimes in a five-round fight especially, they'll take a couple rounds to get going, and then they're going to fight. Kelvin Gaslam, very durable, um, does, doesn't have chin issues. If you're going to defeat him, you're not defeating him in the under three and a half. I feel safe saying if Whitaker wins this fight, we're hitting this over three and a half. 
The flip side to KG, KG a little more dangerous. KG makes us wor worried a little bit. But as I outlined, ever since the Israel Adesanya fight, he's not aggressive, especially not with the strike. He's trying to wrestle a lot more. If KG goes in with a wrestling-heavy game plan, oh, we're hitting this three and a half for sure. And even if he comes out there with a swing and bang style of approach, Whitaker's just got to play to the outside, be smart, avoid those big overhands, and we're going to hit this over three and a half. So if your book doesn't offer that, either take the four and a half, the fight goes the distance. But if your book does offer the three and a half, it was, it was a better price considering you don't got to sweat rounds for the later into four and five. And then finally, I mean, I can't just take minus 155s across the board, right? We need a little plus <laughs> money play. Cody Gravely plus 245 by decision. Yes, please. We see this last time out. It's like he'll just wrestle, 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 establish top control, try to outgrapple you. But beyond that, it's just like chain wrestling game. And when you seem like uh, he's not, I can't even say in the same breath as Khabib. The, the comparison I'm trying to draw is Khabib, when he first broke into the UFC, was almost all decisions, right? Because at this point, you only know the wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. Then when you start to add the other skills, you become a finisher, and now you're able to smit guys. We see Gravely on the regional scene, he's able to finish guys later in the fights, round three, round four, round five. In the UFC, he seems to just be chain wrestle, 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 wrestle. Against Burchak, I think he's going to have success getting those takedowns, get on top of Burchak. I need Burchak's takedown or submission defense to hold up. Takedown defense, don't hold up. Submission defense, do hold up, because I'm looking to hit a prop play here. And with Burchak, we've seen him get submitted last time out, but Gustavo, Gustavo Lopez, that's a bad look for me. He took a grappling match like three months after that, got submitted first round with a guillotine. That's a bad look. We've seen that for a guy. But, but that all aside, he is a black belt. He is a 10th planet guy. He does run his own gym. He is working continuously in the gi and no gi. If he just gives up these takedowns and is able to survive gravely, gravely by decision, plus 245, I like that as a, as a, as a nice size plus money player. All right. We got some solid spots for you guys. Nothing super juicy like we had last week, even though we whiffed on them. Uh, but we will say Cody did bring it up earlier in the show for the Gerald Mearshart fight. Probably the one that I feel most uh, confident about in terms of if we're hitting any round three props uh, this weekend. It's probably Gerald Mearshart 12 to 1 odds against uh, Bartos Fabinski. So there, there's your long shot prop since I'm not delivering for you guys this week. We got the nice and, uh, you know, minus 150 on Cortez, plus 140, round one Al Hassan, and plus 195 on. Zarafarin. So I apologize for the guys that are looking for those big prop money spots this weekend, but I like these much better. Let's look to cash these first, and then we'll start to move forward with looking for the big ones once again. All right. If you guys are with us this long, we're going to give you guys a little bit of a treat. We'll give you guys uh, a prop bet for Bellator, which goes down tomorrow. I'll kick things off as always. I think we, I tried to call the upset last time around with the Machida beating uh, Ryan Bader. He looked great in that first round, then he gets pummeled to, to a pulp for the next four rounds. But I think we see an upset in the main event this weekend, too. I think we see Phil Davis go out there and um, pretty much grind out Vadim Namkov over five rounds. If you guys remember that first fight, it seemed like the momentum was starting to swing in Phil Davis's favor. He has fought three, uh, five rounds three times in his uh, over his career, whereas Vadim Namkov has never seen the fourth or fifth round in his, uh, I believe, 14 fight career uh and it seemed to uh, show in his gas tank a little bit late in that fight against phil davis it was a split decision loss for phil i think he actually pulls it out this time i think he grinds it out over five rounds i think that prop bet phil davis plus 300 via decision doesn't look too shabby so i'm going to be looking to pursue that tomorrow night i like phil davis to pull off the upset and via decision like i said plus 300 how about you cody you got something ready for the guys 
Yeah, so there's a couple spots that I that I don't mind. The ones that I'm looking at is the Paul Daly, Saba Hamasi over two and a half. So Paul Daly generally mercs guys, and Saba Hamasi, I mean, yeah, his last four losses are all by knockout. But you've seen a much different version of Saba Hamasi in Bellator now. He's looking to wrestle a lot more. You see that in the Curtis Millinder fight. He looks filled out in good shape. Paul Daly is 38 years old and a smaller man. If Saba Hamasi is smart, he's going to come out and try to wrestle those early rounds, and he's going to try to tire out Paul Daly try to take some of that power away from him. The bigger body, I think this banks some rounds. The ones that I like beyond that, that's that uh, the over two and a half as a price tag there, sorry, is uh, plus 120. So you got a plus money there. The other ones I like is Mads Brunel, Saul Rogers. Um, Mads Brunel by decision, plus 260. Ooh, so with Mads nice. Brunel, when he came to the UFC, he was young and he was green, but boy, this kid can grapple. My God. Speaking of Arnold Allen, he's got Arnold Allen yeah. out of there, man. He wins the first two rounds. He's looking really good. He gets caught in a guillotine choke in the third. Since he's been released from the UFC, it's like you see very good progression out of this kid getting a lot better. Saul Rogers looked like a fucking world beater on the Ultimate Fighter, but he was already a little bit old, and it was just right place, right time. Unable to get a visa, UFC cuts him, bit of a criminal pass, Bellator signs him up, and he, he looks good for Bellator. I just don't, I haven't seen the progression. I haven't seen that next level out of him. I think if Mads Brunel goes out there and scores takedowns, he should be able to have his way. If he has his way, and again, he's taking on a guy in Saul Rogers that is durable. If he's just able to ground him and win some of these rounds, minus 260 as a price tag, certainly looking for that. And the last one I'm looking at is Steve Mowry versus <clears throat> Sean Asher. This is one is your whole foregone conclusion, but the under one and a half at 225 <laughs> seems almost like free money. So Steve Mowry's six foot eight. He's 28 years old. He trains under Henry Hoof and the Sanford MMA crew, the Black Zillions. And he's just been making a lot of improvements so far in Bellator. He's still raw. He's still green. But what he does is he knocks guys out in the very first round. Sean Asher, friends with him on Facebook, tried to book him for a fight with Todd Stout once upon a time. He's uh, 41 years old, a former middleweight, and he has had one fight in the last six years. So this is not likely to go very well. Also, he's a former basketball player. This is not likely to go well for him. However, if for whatever reason he's sprung an upset, it's going to be under one and a half. <laughs> he's going to catch Maori coming in the way that Abby almost did a couple fights back. So the, uh, I know it's 225, but it's like I really don't see this thing getting out of the first. There's a reason it's 225. <laughs> There's a very good reason it's minus 225. Yeah, yeah. And we've been burned on a couple under one and a halfs in the UFC. Yes. This ain't the UFC dog. No. <laughs> this is no. Sean Asher's short notice, 41 years old. Uh I, I, I think this one has a much better feel to it anyways. So, again, if I was to put them in rank, what I like, the under one and a half, it's minus 225 for a reason. And then I actually do really like that Mads Brunel by decisions, plus 260. It's a big plus money tag. Going to have a sprinkle on there. And then in confidence order, the third one would be the Paul Daly Saba Hamasi because uh, buyer beware or bias beware, Paul Daly, one of my favorite players of all yeah. times. But at 38, I think the Semtex is a little less explosive than it used to be. His best knockouts now in Bellator 2017, 2018. Uh, sorry, he beat Lorenz Larkin. That's back in 2017 now, right? So is there is there a little bit you know left in the tank potentially? But I think Sabo is going to be able to last some rounds. And if he does spring an upset, it's going to be with the wrestling heavy attack. And again, we would hit that over two and a half. He's not cementing Paul Daly, I don't think. No. He's not knocking out Paul Daly, I don't think. So hopefully we hit some over two and a half. 
I think the last time we've seen Paul Daly knocked out was that crazy Nick Diaz war from like 10 years ago. So, uh, yeah, it's going to take that type of effort. round of all time. <laughs> yeah, one <laughs> of the best round rounds of all, of all time, for sure. All right, uh, Bellator, not as chalky as it has been the last couple of weeks, so there are a little bit more competitive fights on the card. The one that I'm really looking forward to is seeing how Lance Gibson Jr. looks. The kid looks like he's the a little bit of the real deal, not to mention he's pretty much grown up in the fight game with his stepmother, Julia Butt, obviously fighting on the card as well. And then well, his, his dad, father. His dad fought in the UFC. Lance yeah. Gibson Jr., yeah, he used to be in the ufc's way back in the day yeah and also used to be a coach for like rampage jackson back yep. in the day julia bud used to spend a lot of time down in memphis as well right so it's like quite literally this kid's grown up in the game and you see chris brennan the the chris brennan's son sorry fights in bellator as well it's like these next generation guys these second generation guys aj mckee yeah, yeah, AJ McHugh's a massive star in Bellator now. And as a huge opportunity, if he was to beat Patricio Freite, like Bellator, but the advantage Bellator has over the UFC is the UFC is not going to sign an O and O guy, yeah. and, and Bellator will. And so Bellator will get you right out of college, and yep. they're willing to work with you. The Cody Law, right? You see it as well. A Dalton Rosta from last weekend, Cody Law. It's like they just sign them right out of college, and you can allow them to grow and fight cans, which they do. And yeah. fight 10 of them, which they yeah. will. And eventually <laughs> it's like, I got a decent little prospect on my hands. But you can get these guys as kids. You know, you got AJ McKee. He's young. He signs with Bellator. You got Chris Brennan's kid. He's young. He signs with Bellator. Jalen Bates looks interesting too. That kid just coming out of the amateur scene. Yeah, absolutely. Jalen Bates is 10 and 0 as an amateur, but the yeah. UFC is not going to sign. You could be 30 and 0 as an amateur. They're not going to sign an undefeated amateur. They want to see those pro fights, right? So, again, Bellator scoops these guys up and allows them to grow there. Jalen Bates did not look like he wanted to strike at all, no. but his tenacity <laughs> on the ground, that yeah. kid's got something. Allow him to grow. The UFC would sign Jalen Bates and throw him to a top 20 guy because he yeah. won one vote. Like, yeah. don't do that. Bellator yeah. is going to allow this guy to mature. And as long the as the judges, yeah. yeah, as long as the judges don't go to Yamauchias this weekend, <laughs> those big favorites are going to continuously yeah. probably win, right? For sure, uh, for sure. I agree. This is a fun fight. I'll tweet us some Bellator parlays tomorrow, and then as a last wrap it up for the show, uh, I want to apologize. My setup looks terrible tonight. So the light <laughs> died. The light died like halfway through, which made it even darker. It's got like this blue going on. I got a new camera, which is a better camera, but just looks awful. It's a much wider shot. Like, clearly, I should have not waited till eight minutes before the show to sign on to StreamYard because I could have seen it better. But thanks for no one's in the chat has really said anything about it. no one called me out. But <laughs> they did at the beginning. <laughs> this doesn't look good, man. This is some yeah. Bush League bullshit. I'm, I'm trying to give you good advice and look good doing it. Thanks for thanks for tuning in. Thanks for watching. Uh, it'll look a lot better next week, and I promise. But uh, yeah, I had a I had a good time talking fights tonight with my boy Manfred, as always. So thanks for joining us, and uh, yeah, catch in the post weigh-in show with the boys from Oz.com on Manfred's show on Lock Show. Go support that, and uh, it'll be good vibes, good reunions. So good luck to everybody on the Bellator. Good luck to everybody on the UFC. Good luck to everybody. Fade and Jake Paul's bitch ass Ben Askren plus money. <laughs> <laughs> also over three and a half in on that <laughs> um yeah yeah this is a fun weekend for combat sports yeah i'm sure everybody's just happy that they can hear your voice so they're totally fine with the setup so they're still able to get that uh technical breakdown for you so i'm sure they're very happy about that so yeah appreciate everybody joining us uh two solid two and two hours and 50 minutes that we're we're going for you guys again as cody said tomorrow evening i'm going to be doing the ultimate way and show me 
Co or sorry, <laughs> I want to say Cody, but uh, me, uh, Bleed MMA, MMA Prediction Guru, and Clint from MMA Dire Podcast, 9 p.m. Eastern on this channel. We will break down the fights for you guys one last time. So hopefully you guys can join us for that. Uh, and yeah, uh, for everybody asking for an entire Bellator breakdown, tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, I'll be going live on my channel just to run through the card in a brief uh, form for you guys. So if you guys want to join me for that, you guys are more than welcome to. All right. As always, make sure you guys like, subscribe, do all that good shit. And we'll see you guys next week, 8 p.m. Eastern, propping you up for a big triple header title fight night that we got of a, a pay-per-view event, UFC 261. Can't wait to break that down with my guy Cody and give you guys some winning bets, hopefully. All right. Appreciate you guys checking it out. And we'll see you guys next week or tomorrow if you guys want to join me for those streams as well.